not back. We're 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 just starting. We're here for the first time today. <laughs> this is the main course on Heritage Radio Network. We are your co-hosts, Katie Kiefer and Patrick Martins. Um, today's show is sponsored by TechServe. And Ooh, tell us about their amazing e-waste. Uh, I am campaign. because this is really a fantastic um, program that they're running right now. TechServe is having an e-waste recycling event created to help keep hazardous materials out of landfills by recycling electronics. Saturday, July 10th from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. on 23rd Street near 6th Avenue, you can drop off all of your electronics. And they're talking about your computers, um, I guess old TVs. Your iPads. All of that stuff that um, (laughs) contains components which are loaded with toxic chemicals. Um, This, by the way, is already a problem in china where they take all that stuff and then they have harvesting of that in the dumps and they make new things out of it but people meanwhile are getting very sick from that anyway have to find a new so, word for that other than harvest yeah because so, they harvest meat too yeah. which is my favorite euphemism for slaughtering um info at techserve.com slash recycling for more information about this program and uh, thank you TechServe for sponsoring our program and yes. our network and our network unbelievable Incredible generosity people. there um, our guest is marion nestle oh patrick today. you just couldn't wait to what a hero well she's gonna come on in a couple minutes but i mean we just have to blurt that out i mean uh, yeah because it's it's a proud moment for the main course there is not an intern Marion, are you actually blushing yes oh you god you're sweet she is adorable well we should summarize a few news items um you know i know you're into the gas drilling thing um but we could talk about that with Marion. Tell us about your food film the festival. The NYC Food Film Festival, which kicked off on Wednesday night, is in its last day today. And I have to say, I'm on my last legs. <laughs> I have never worked harder, except I have to say that the people who organize this festival have worked even harder than I have. And our volunteer corps from uh, Food Bank and other organizations has been absolutely amazing. Amazing. These are people who will get up in the morning, show up for work at 7 a.m. and work until this festival set is struck and we are done for the night, sometimes two or three o'clock in the morning. I mean, it has been a Herculean effort. How many people um, have come through this room? Uh, we've had thousands of people. Uh, okay. It's hard for me to say exactly how many we've had at each event, but it's definitely we're in the thousands. Um, this, the uh, scope of the events this this year were this is the fourth year of this festival, and the excuse me the scope of the events were um, absolutely incredible. We had the world's largest food truck drive-in yesterday. We oh. had about forty um, no rolling crashes. food. <laughs> No, although it was kind of scary loading them into their bays. Let me tell you, it was much harder than loading a racehorse. Oh, brother. <laughs> um, but we had about 40, you know, we had all the Brooklyn Flea vendors. We had the Red Hook um, vendors. We had uh, like 25 food trucks. Um, mm. And of course, we showed these amazing short films um, from all over the world about different topics uh, related to the food, to food, the food chain, the food industry, and so on. It I was, admired how really, you really got fun. the food uh, of the event to be in line with the subject of the movie. Well, movies. not only that, but you get um, you get samples of the foods that you see in the films. Those are always free. Um, sometimes the entire event is ticketed and you pay something like today's events. We have our very own Heritage Radio Network. Matt Timms is at this moment doing, doing a Grits, a grits Takedown. Yeah. yeah. He's got a fun show. He's a, he's a great guy. He's got, what a fun he show really that is. is. And he has, um, once a month. he has about 33 people participating in this Grits. Including uh, the Cole Take Taylor, down. who's the host of Hot Grease. No way. 
She took a Heritage Foods pork shoulder to the competition. Oh, good so for we hope her. She wins. That's fantastic. Um, and then this evening is our closing uh, event, which is um, a burger and beer garden. This is all taking place at the Tobacco Warehouse in Dumbo. I think we still have tickets available for that. If people want to go online at www.nycfoodfilmfestival.com, check it out. It is um, it is priced. You do have to pay, but it's all you can eat and drink uh, of craft beers. And Just what Marin wanted to hear. Burgers. All you can eat. Stuff yourself. <laughs> yeah, right. At least you you're can. stuffing yourself with food from Pat Lafrida, from Whole Foods, from Heritage um, Foods. We did the one of the events. You did, that's Robbie. right. You gave us the pork bellies. Well, um, all right. Well, you've gotten your time. I we don't want to go too long on the intro. <laughs> no, with because someone we want more caliber. time with Marion. But I do have to give my one World Cup stat. I know probably not that many people tune in for World Cup uh, news to to the main course on Sundays, but. In the history of the World Cup, four teams have won every single World Cup since the dawn of the competition, except for four times. So between Germany, Brazil, Argentina, and uh, wait, Germany, well, Germany, Brazil, Argentina, and now, of course, I'm all nervous, I'm not going to remember... The fourth, but there's one other country: Germany, Argentina, Brazil, and Italy. Italy, thank you, have won all the World Cups except for four. And those other four, one was won by England, uh, one was won Which by makes France, sense. yeah, and two were won by Uruguay. So it's anyway, it's an interesting thing. People, you know, there's so much time that separates the various cups. Uh, people forget the dominance of those four countries in this world competition. And when they say Brazil's won the cup five times, that's actually 20 years of dominance because they only play the four cups. So it, it, it's an interesting... So uh, the World Cup only plays every four years. Correct. And it has been uh, playing for how many years has the World Cup been a sporting event like, say, the Olympics have? Um, well, it doesn't go back to uh, 2000 BC or anything, no. but it does... Although I don't the know, game maybe is probably be- not too different than it was. I'm sure it was probably the 30s variation and 40s. of it was played then. Yeah. Probably the 30s and 40s. Cool. Yeah. Very anyway, cool. Thank that you for that statistic. Yeah, Heather. that's a good one, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Yeah, it sounds well, like concentration in the food industry. Yeah. Yes, exactly. It's not fair. <laughs> Well, we are going to take a 30-second break, and we will come back with one of the most uh, prestigious guests that this network's ever hosted. We're truly honored, Marion Nessel. so much, but you use it. If you lose it, would you ever feel ashamed? And I will only tell you one more time than you know that I'm never going to tell you again. Our guest today is Marion Nessel. I would I just want you to know I would be unemployed right now and homeless if it wasn't for Marion because every intern that has ever worked with me through slow food days, heritage foods days, now 
so uh, radio network days. There is not an intern I've ever met that has not come out of the food studies program or somehow connected to Marion Nestle. So it is amazing how many literally thousands and thousands of minds she's touched and educated in this important new field of food so it is and i've known you for over 10 years so it is a complete honor thank you so much for coming all the way oh, out it's to my pleasure totally so you have a new book out which surprised me it's called uh, feed your pet right yeah how about that <laughs> and uh, do you have pets is that no why? not at all <laughs> well tell us what got how you did you in? yeah because you have another book that preceded that about the pet food industry so I, obviously you this is a sort of an ongoing topic for oh, you you got interested yeah, how, how I hope did that we're happen? finished with it now but the <laughs> um, it started out uh, as an offshoot of what to eat my book that came out in 2006 and that book was not really about what to eat it's how to think about food issues and how to mm. think about what to eat and I situated it in supermarkets and used supermarkets as an organizing device and I was doing a lot of work in the Ithaca Wegmans because my boyfriend lives in Ithaca and this is really about a late in life romance mm. uh, and the Ithaca Wegmans at the time that I, I was writing What to Eat had a pet food aisle that was 120 feet long uh, dog food on one side cat food on the other six or seven shelves along the whole way this is serious supermarket major real estate. estate this is major real estate it amounted to one-seventh of the packaged food aisles in that store and so I was looking at it and thinking this is a huge part of supermarket sales what's going on here and I would pick up these little cans and packages and look at them and don't have the faintest idea what they were talking about guaranteed analysis what's that they didn't <laughs> they don't have nutrition facts labels. But my partner, Mal Nesheim, who's a retired animal nutritionist from Cornell, would look at it and say, oh, yeah, this is this, 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 and this, this is this, and this. And I thought, hmm, if I don't understand this stuff, there must be other people who probably don't understand it either. Did and you, he, When you first came to it, did you see the same things that you saw when you first came upon a cereal box and all that, where the game, absolutely. did it seem a it similar Absolutely, it was obviously pitch? being game because there were health claims all over these packages yes. and that seemed very much like human um, health claims there were herbal supplements in these foods that i knew mm -hmm. didn't work in human clinical trials so what are they doing in dog food um, so i was kind of curious about all of that and i knew that there was a huge there must be a huge industry behind it if you read the tiny tiny print you could see that only a few companies make all of the virtually all of the commercial pet food it's concentration in the food industry they're mostly food or consumer products companies like Procter & Gamble or mm -hmm. Nestle, no relation. Um, <laughs> Let's or, quickly say. Or yeah. <laughs> Mars, the maker of M&M's, is mm -hmm. the biggest pet food manufacturer in the world. I did not know that. And movie. is it because they had extra stuff that they didn't know what to do with and so they got into it because part of their food supply could connect to pet food or do they get into this independently? That's possible. I mean, the most obvious example of that is Nestle, Nestle Purina, because they 
they bought Purina, Ralston Purina, which was a feed which was supply the big company. Feed supply, yeah. And the, you know, if you have a one private pet food company where I met the owner, started the company because they had a buffalo ranch in Colorado, mm. and they were selling the buffalo meat, but they had the hearts and livers left over. They hated throwing them away because they were really nutritious, and so they started a pet food company mm-hmm. uh, that unfortunately is now out of business. It was a good company. Why do you think that company went out of business? They weren't able to break into that market share, take any market share away from the Ralston Purina John. Or people? Oh no, they people were simply bought, didn't. No, the company was oh. Pet Promise, and it was bought by. I remember that. It company. was bought by Nestle Purina, and it was a very interesting company because they were doing everything right. Mm-hmm. They were sourcing their ingredients. They knew the names of the farmers that they bought eggs from or bought chicken from. Um, they could tell me the names of every single supplier, except for some of the vitamin mixes which were coming from China, as most of them do. Um, and they were bought by Nestle Purina, which advertised it very widely as their sustainable operation but it was expensive and I guess not enough people bought it and they dropped it and yet there are many of us who will buy I mean I buy premium pet food for my cat I buy IAMS or science Mm -hmm. diet and I must say that once I found that you were coming on the program and we were going to be talking I was like looking at the labels because I wanted to and I I should have bought some fancy feast or nine lives or to do a comparison so that we could talk about the different ingredients and I'm sorry I didn't get to that but um, we have a table in our book that does exactly that. Uh, that breaks down each ingredient? That breaks down the ingredients and does a comparison of premium products. Mm-hmm. So tell us about some of them. What are some of the more egregious ones? And what are, are I what mean, are are there, well, what are egreg- the legitimate ones? Egregious and what are the- isn't really a word that applies. I mean, that was a big surprise. Um, the ingredients of all pet foods are byproducts of human food production. Of course. I mean, even when they say that they're human-grade ingredients, they're using the parts of the animals or fish that humans don't eat. Mm-hmm. And I was just in a fish processing plant in on the Aleutian Islands. Well, you do know how to have a good time, don't oh, you, Oh, yeah, I do. This was a great <laughs> trip. And I watched the... I, I was in a plant that made that, that filleted salmon mm-hmm. and used the salmon racks for pet food. It went off to a pet food maker, and I could see they were perfectly good mm-hmm. pieces of the fish, and you hated to throw them away. They had sure. quite a lot of salmon still on the bones. I thought that was a very good use for it. So that was kind of a surprise, was mm-hmm. that all pet foods, no exceptions, I don't care what they say, they're all byproducts of human food production. Mm. Um, so once you get your head around that, then some byproducts are better than others, and that's something you know that we, that we went into. But pet foods are like infant formulas in that they're one-stop shopping. You buy a can of pet food or some of the dry stuff, and it meets all of the cat or dog's nutritional requirements. All pet foods that are labeled as complete and balanced do that. So in that sense, they're like infant formulas, and they're all the same. So complete and balanced are all pet foods billed um, as complete and balanced? Only the ones that are labeled as complete and balanced are. are. So there yeah. are some that there are, are some not that are, labeled. Yeah, then those are, are sold as supplements or um, as treats or as something that doesn't meet all of the nutritional requirements. But the typical pet food that you buy in a grocery store is going to be complete and balanced, often for all life stages, which means you can feed it to any 
animal from puppies on up. I was going to ask you about the difference in labeling because they do make a point of saying for kittens, for the active cat, for the aging cat, for the sedentary cat or whatever, oh, yeah. you know, and for different and breeds what of do dogs. they do? What's different in those products? Practically nothing. I was wondering. Yeah, yeah. practically nothing. <laughs> um, you know, if it says complete and balanced, it meets all of the animal's nutritional requirements. Sometimes they test to make sure that that's really the case. Sometimes it's just by the rule book, and we think all pet food should be tested. That was one of the conclusions from this. Um, but basically, they're all the same. And the difference is in the in where the ingredients come from. And there you get into absolutely passionate. Um, if you think human food people are passionate about what they eat, try pet owners. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there are you know subgroups of pet owners who think that you should only feed your pet raw food, mm. you should cook for your pet, you should only feed kosher food, you should only feed vegetarian food, you should never feed vegetables. I mean, very contradictory kinds of things. And we ended up thinking that like human diets, you can feed pets lots of different kinds of diets and they'll just do fine. Mm-hmm. But what about those vitamins and minerals that they advertise so heavily on pet food, uh, you know, cans and boxes? What if you're not, you know, man, don't they need like bone meal or, you know, well, special, um, you know, special like minerals and supplements that, well, they do, that wouldn't but, come if you gave them the chicken and rice from your own plate? Yeah, they wouldn't. And we have recipes in the book that mm-hmm. um, actually the recipe business is hilarious because we got <laughs> we got the biggest, um, most serious clinical nutrition for pets book pet books that exist. It's produced by the Hills Company that makes Science Diet and mm-hmm. so forth. But it's a really, really good book. And we read the chapter on cooking, you know, on diets for pets. And it goes on and on and on for pages of tiny print about how you must never, 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 never cut, cook for your pet because you'll do irreparable damage. Well, I wonder and why then, they say that. And then, <laughs> yeah, why do they say that? And then it gives recipes for a generic recipe for dog and cat for dog food and for cat food that is so simple mm. and so easy to do really that anybody, so you could save a that anybody, fortune you could save so is I that mean, what I you spend a couple Marianne? bucks a day on my dog cat well food. if you're worried about what the, where the ingredients are and you're worried that they're using rendered ingredients or they're using parts of animals that you think are absolutely disgusting yeah you can cook for your what pet what about uh, like a company like Newman's Own Organic I mean or these very now expensive pet foods that every pet food shop certainly in the right. city i have two dogs it's i'm like 329 a can this right. should be good they is are, there a correlation between price and quality uh, sometimes yes sometimes no uh, they're still using byproducts of human food production um, the more expensive ones will have less grain and more meat or more meat brought by, more less grain products and more meat brought mm-hmm. by products, um, and maybe they'll be organic and maybe they'll be sourced from individual suppliers and maybe whatever. You kind of have to take them at their word. The whole organic thing in pet food is a really difficult situation because the USDA has never set organic standards for pet for no, pet of foods, not. Um, and so they're kind of applying human organic standards and. 
here is one of the places where organic certification gets kind of iffy because there are organic certifiers that will certify pet foods, even though all of the ingredients cannot be organic. There are some mm-hmm. that just can't be. Um, and then there are other organic certifiers that refuse to. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of the pet food industry? I mean, it's a very interesting one. Like, it was one of the largest recalls ever, right? And it led right. to... And uh, I wrote a book about it. Yeah, so tell a us a little it. bit about it. I should say something about that book, too, because... What happened was we got the contract to do this sort of little project on pet foods. And three weeks later, this enormous recall of melamine in pet food occurred where it was killing cats and dogs. Um, And it was a big shock because the first thing that everybody realized was that the company that made this food was making 95 brands of pet food, ranging from the cheapest to the most expensive. From Old Roy at Walmart to Iams, um, which was one of the company definitely a premium product that, you know yeah. these really fancy premium products they were all manufactured at the same plant hmm. using basically combinations of the same ingredients one of which which was a phony wheat gluten produced in china that really wasn't wheat gluten it was melamine plus wheat flour and um, melamine is a plastic. Melamine is the chemical component of melamine dinnerware. Mm-hmm. And what happens when you make, and China is the biggest supplier of melamine dinnerware, and the process of making it creates a lot of what they call melamine scrap. Mm-hmm. which is extremely high in nitrogen. And so you hate to throw it away because nitrogen is a rare ingredient. It's what you have to eat protein to get, and it, or it's what um, the sun fixes in plants. And so they hate to throw it away. They tried using it for fertilizer. It didn't work very well. And so unscrupulous producers got the idea that you could add melamine to anything that had protein in it. And because the chemical test for protein doesn't test for protein, it tests for nitrogen. Mm-hmm. Melamine would make it appear as if there was a lot of protein. Hence we, the infant formula hence the, disaster. The, well, the infant formula came later. And I was completely riveted by this uh, incident because I thought it was a complete demonstration of what's happening in the concentration of our food supply and the failure of our food safety system to keep up with what's going on. And I was quite sure that if this failure occurred with pet food, it would occur with human food. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up writing a little, what was meant to be a little appendix to the pet food book and turned out to get completely out of hand and be an (laughs) investigative report on this thing. It was Pet Food Politics. It was published in 2008. And six months later, there was melamine and infant formula, just as I predicted. Hmm. Fantastic. That book is, again, Pet Food Politics, The Chihuahua in the Coal Mine. I love that subtitle. And um, and that has come out in paperback just this year, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Unbelievable. Here's one of our next guests. I love the Roberta's uh, kind of, you know, we're never immune to the public here because there's like people that we know, Shana from Back 40. And (laughs) anyway, well, this is great. Um, We're going to take a uh, one minute break and then we're going to come back and talk about greed. Greed and talk about food safety and how it... Food safety and greed, yeah. How, and how sugar, greed and food safety have an... Politics, have an, lobbying, Oh my like God, that. there's just no end, Mary. I know. <laughs> Mary, we need you on for 12 hours. Does it fill your head with dreams? 
This is the main course on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, with my co-host and partner in crime, Patrick Martins. Our guest today is Marion Nessel, the noted nutritionist and um, <laughs> regular bomb thrower. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> the food She's a truth monger. <laughs> well, from the point of view of big food, I would bomb. say I bet they call you the no, bomb thrower. They are the bomb throwers. Well, we're going to talk about that. But first, we're also going to talk about TechServe, which is our sponsor today and our sponsor uh, for the Heritage Radio Network. And I want to let people know that TechServe is having an e-waste recycling event, which is created to help keep labs hazardous materials out of landfills by recycling your electronics. On Saturday, July. July 10th from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. at TechServe uh, on 23rd Street near 6th Avenue. You can bring your stuff, you know, all your electronics that you want to get rid of, and they'll take care of it for you. The info, uh, more information about this is at TechServe.com slash recycling. Jack, will so, you find out if they will accept my Commodore 64? I don't want to be rejected from Can I dump my, my, yeah, Time I know, I have an old computer I want to get rid of, that's for sure. So let's pick it up, where, uh, let's pick up another thread of the many threads that we could go on with you, um, having sort of covered the, having gone from pet food and and how pet food relates to human food, let's go from human food and sort of the profit motive versus um, national health Greed. and how how um, how corporations, uh, whilst I think you know in their own minds they think they're doing nothing but good, um, except that they have to service their bottom line, um, and well, how I would that say has that they argue that they're feeding the world. They do. They That's very much do. Argument. And they argue it with pride and to a certain extent yeah. with real truth because yeah, big corporations are feeding the world and they're feeding it cheaply. I mean, we, we have this conversation a lot about um, <laughs> it's not that I want to support um, big food, but I also recognize that you cannot um, actually feed the world with a lovely back garden at Roberta's, much as I would like to think. That actually, was you can feed quite a number of people from a lovely back garden at mm-hmm. Roberta's. And if everybody were growing their own food, uh, they would take a big chunk out of the necessity for corporations to feed us. But everybody can't grow their own food. But everybody can. Well, everybody can grow a little. Even Everyone in a can pot. have a chicken. Not if uh, you no. have a black thumb like me, I can tell you that. <laughs> no. or you, and not everybody wants to. No, of but, course not. Uh, you know, and they I mean, shouldn't have to. I mean, the the... The thing about corporations, I mean, when I first started thinking about these kinds of issues in a serious way, I was concerned about obesity. And I and my starting point in this for my book, Food Politics, was that I was going to a lot of nutrition professional meetings and hearing lots of people woeing about childhood obesity. And never once did I hear anybody talk about food marketing. It just mm-hmm. simply didn't exist. And I was kind of astounded by that because it seemed to me that you could track the o- beginning of the obesity problem to, the, to 1980. And a lot of things happened around 1980. A lot of things happened. Reagan came into power mm-hmm. and did a lot of deregulating. By 1980, the farm system had completely changed so that farmers were being paid to grow as much food as they possibly could. Wall Street changed in 1981 from valuing blue chip stocks to valuing shareholder value, which meant that corporations had to not only produce higher returns on investment, but had to produce higher returns on investment every 90 days, or Wall Street got really upset quarterly reports, um, so that growth was an important factor. So here's the food. This was a problem for all corporations. Mm -hmm. And we see this 
on Wall Street and in the Gulf of Mexico right now. Absolutely. But for food corporations, it was especially a problem because the calories in the food supply went from 3,200 a day uh, per capita in the United States, which was also already more than enough to feed everybody almost twice over, to 3,900 calories a day, which is what it is now. Now, that's not what everybody's eating, but it's what's available in the food supply. You're a food corporation. You've got to sell that stuff. You have to sell your food in an environment that's so competitive that there's twice as much food available as anybody needs. And Wall Street expects you to expand sales every 90 days. So this is a problem. And as a result of that, corporations, which are not social service agencies. Definitely not. They're um, profit. They're profit making. But should they be? I mean, shouldn't, um, I mean, isn't, this sounds crazy maybe, but like, Shouldn't Purdue's job be to feed people and not make profits or it'd be dictated that they just make a little? I mean, is it okay to privatize the food supply? Well, that, that's a completely different question. Our food supply is privatized. Yeah. And so, it always has been. And it always has been. What you, what you want to do if you want to change these kinds of things is you regulate. But right now we have a government that doesn't do much in the way of regulating. With food. With food or anything or else. Anything else. Right. Or anything else. Or anything else. I mean, else. We, re- we deregulated Wall Street, and now we, yeah, you know, we and that happened, and that started, they dismantled the regulations in Wall Street, starting with the Reagan administration. And, and so there you are, and that's, and the reason, and we're seeing the results of that now, not only in our food supply, but in the Gulf of Mexico. Well, uh, give us some examples of how deregulation and, 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 and greed, and, and when these things happen in the 80s, how does that manifest itself well, in most, concrete ways at the Well, the, the most obvious example is food safety. Mm-hmm. If you're a corporation producing a food, you cut corners. Where can you cut corners? We know how to produce safe food. There's no miracle about producing safe food. Those methods have been worked out, were worked out decades ago. You you follow a HACCP plan. But I thought HACCP was a relatively new introduction into the food safety arena. No, it's in the 1960s. That was almost 50 years ago. Really? So that's decades ago. Yeah. Um, But it hasn't been required. And now uh, it since, is required. No, it's yeah. only required for a handful of foods. For oh, meat, for poultry, meat and poultry, eggs. Uh, meat and poultry and eggs. Um, meat and poultry on the USDA side, eggs on USDA and FDA, and on the FDA side, um, besides uh, juices, that's it. Fresh juices, that's it. Everything else is voluntary. Mm-hmm. And wow. so, and voluntary leaves a lot of room for maneuverability and we saw and for cutting corners and for cutting corners and we saw that in the uh, in the uh, the spinach recall was separate um, that that's a separate situation because even though there were plenty of warnings the company that produced that particular spinach didn't realize that it wasn't washing the bacteria off but the best example i could think of was the peanut corporation of america mm. you know where they knew they had salmonella they knew they had salmonella. Uh, they tested. They found salmonella. They sent it. They they changed labs until they got the result they wanted and sent it out anyway. Um, or the pistachio people who yep. produced pistachio that was contaminated with salmonella, they recalled it and repackaged it under another name. You know, I mean that kind of thing is corner cutting. The FDA doesn't have the 
authority to require companies to recall. It's all done voluntarily and begging and pleading and moral suasion, which is a difficult situation for a regulatory agency to be in. Um, and we don't like regulation in this country. Mm-hmm. It's against, you know, it's un-American to regulate. Well, tell us about sugar. I mean, that's a big example, right? It's one oh. of the most um, ignored substances in the world and and it should be right i mean well the sugar situation is is particularly interesting because it's not subsidized um it's tightly regulated and what that does interestingly enough is it costs american consumers three times as much as for sugar as it costs on the open market because we don't have an open market for sugar um we have tariffs and various kinds of quotas for sugar beets and for sugar cane that benefit a few very large corporations. I did not know that. But hmm. what what about the impact of sugar, the way they pack sugar into foods that contributes to the obesity well, issues? Well, actually, they're packing high fructose so, corn syrup into foods, and that happened in the early 1980s. It was all, another one of those things that happened in the early 1980s, where when um, the growers were subsidized, when corn growers were subsidized for growing as much corn as they possibly could. And they remain had, subsidized. And remain subsidized. They had, to, at, to the tune of billions of dollars a year, they had to find a use for that corn. And one of them was they figured out how to make corn sweetener out of corn starch. Mm -hmm. You extract the starch, treat it with enzymes, and turn it into a liquid sugar, basically. And it was much, much, much cheaper than the sugar that was um, extracted from sugar cane or sugar beets. And so they put it in everything. And And now we have a new marketing initiative in which companies are advertising the fact that they're using real sugar as opposed to well, this is Michael Pollan's fault because in Omnivore's Dilemma he talked about (laughs) he talked about corn and everybody got the idea from that that high fructose corn syrup was poison, which it's not. It's just sugar. I have, Um, I mean, I have heard many things about high fructose corn syrup, and I'm so glad we have an opportunity to take that apart with you, Marion. What is it? I mean, some people say that high fructose corn syrup makes you gain weight faster. It contributes to, you know, all, all manner of, of problems and diseases, oh dear. diabetes, glucose intolerance, yeah, yeah, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Are those, in fact, the case? Or is high fructose corn syrup as benign as sugar? Oh, no, 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 no. neither that, one of them is benign. Well, I mean, in the sense, yeah. it's no more dangerous than no, sugar. This, this requires a biochemistry lesson, and there's no mm. other way to do it. Um, high fructose corn syrup is glucose and fructose, two single sh- sugars separated. They're already split. Sucrose, the stuff on the table, is glucose and fructose stuck together. It has to be separated by an enzyme in the mouth and in the intestine. They're no different biochemically. Mm-hmm. All of the business about these sugars causing diabetes or adding on fat or being metabolized differently has to do with the fructose component of both of them. It doesn't matter where the fructose comes from. It's fructose that's the problem, not in fruit, but it's adding large amounts of fructose to the diet not a good idea and it doesn't matter whether it's high fructose corn syrup or sucrose either okay, one there you go. You got so, it from the horse's mouth, so the people. idea of putting sucrose as a replacement for high fructose corn syrup is hilarious and using that as a marketing yeah. device and the reason yeah. that they're doing that is because of ethanol i mean everything is connected to everything it's because of ethanol production corn is going to ethanol so the price of high fructose corn syrup is going up, way up and is the same now as sucrose so you might as well use sucrose well we wanted to talk about 
about the farm bill and how farm subsidies have an impact on our food chain and the fact of course we all are paying with our tax dollars for farm subsidies and products like corn um, like soy like um, wheat and wheat cotton. and cotton yeah mm. we all pay for those you know farmers are, are given the opportunity to grow them mm. they're encouraged to grow them at, and then they have an impact on the rest of the food chain. For example, the fact that ethanol is now siphoning off corn from the cattle feed industry or from the livestock mm-hmm. feed industry has, as I'm sure you've seen, Patrick, um, pushed up meat prices. Mm-hmm. And so let's talk a little bit about how those farm subsidies ultimately have an impact on the consumer and what can we do about you know, pushing Congress into a different direction because really that is controlled by the Midwest and the Corn Belt to a large oh, extent yeah. in terms of lobbying. I was once um, visiting with the people in State College, Iowa, which is, uh, you know, sort of the height, the ground heart, zero. the ho- ground zero of farm <laughs> subsidies. And they explained that if farm subsidies stopped, every Iowa farmer would go out of business tomorrow. And Is that true? I think it probably is because the margins are so narrow. And I Iowa used to be um, a, a state f- where they grew food. Now yeah. they now they only grow animal feed, corn and soybeans uh, every, everywhere. And you know what you have to do is you need a. Fu- I mean, what you need is an agricultural policy that promotes health. And the obesity problem has at least brought to public attention that we need an agricultural policy that's going to promote public health, not the health of corporations necessarily. Do you think that the Obama administration is going to be serious about pursuing an agenda like that with Tom Vilsack? from Iowa as the Secretary of Agriculture? Well, I actually don't think Vilsack is as bad as he was made out to be. I, he certainly, I have no opinion about him. He certainly know. made some very good appointments uh, in the Department of Agriculture. He made some well, bad Kathleen appointments, Kathleen Merrigan, too. Yeah, she okay. gets a lot of good press. She gets it. Kathleen I Merrigan. haven't really seen her producing anything in terms of policy initiatives or... I mean, you know, the well, sustainability a, conference that I went to in February, for example, with the USDA did not impress me. Oh, is that right? As something where I felt like we were going to make big progress against big agriculture. No, I, not at all. I like the Know Your Farmer. Um, it's tiny. But, but, well, you have to start someplace. I yeah. guess. And this but is I really a, felt and this, it was a pretty sort of a, a um, I felt like it was a, um, a nod to the public ah. concern and not something that they were really putting a lot of money and initiative behind well, I in would terms think it would of be changing very diffi- policy. I, th- I would think it would be difficult to put a lot of money and initiative behind it because I see this in the agencies that I know more about, like the FDA. I know a mm-hmm. lot more about what's going on with the FDA. And there are a lot of people in the FDA who really want to do good things and they're stymied at every turn. At every, you know, In every single thing they want to do, they can't do it. And Obama is trying to exercise whatever initiatives he's doing in a completely dysfunctional government. I mean, mm-hmm. our government can't do anything. It's completely blocked. It's stuck. Well, talk about, um, maybe just to concretize that, like you were talking about the USDA and the FDA as being two separate entities. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you think it should be one? That's of course an absurd it's food. division, Of right? course it's an absurd division. So we need, we tell need a food our agency. listeners uh, a yeah. little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, for historical reasons, the uh, when all these things were established, the USDA was given meat and poultry, and the FDA was given everything else. Um, because... The, the most bizarre part about it is that the 
uh, USDA and FDA both get their funding for historical reasons from Agriculture Appropriations Committee. So you're an, an Agricultural Appropriations Committee member. You come from a farm state. You're probably a big corporate farmer yourself. You're going to give the FDA funding. Mm-hmm. So the result of that is that the FDA regulates three quarters of the food supply with one quarter of the funding, mm. and the USDA regulates one quarter of the food supply with three quarters of the funding. Um, And they're separated. They're talking to each other in this administration for the first time in history. But we really need one food agency. And certainly from the food safety standpoint, everybody acts as if these are two completely different things. But the reason the spinach got contaminated was because there were animals in the field or someplace around there. There there. was a confined area feeding operation maybe a mile down the road. Maybe. And the water, the ground Groundwater was contaminated from the effluent from that CAFO. That that, that I understand is the story. Yeah, that would be the most obvious explanation. Mm -hmm. And this happens all over the country, actually. Yeah, Yeah, and and as dairy farms are moving into the Central Valley in California, which they most definitely are, this puts the vegetables at risk. Now, um... I, one of my questions I wanted to ask you was, you know, how does academics drive change and, you know, in what ways? And so, for instance, all these things you're saying are, are, are true. And, and I, you know, of course, believe them and anyone who's educated would believe them, too. But then where does that go? I mean, what is the potential for change once these truths are out there? I mean, is there a chance that the FDA and USDA, for example, will ever unite is there a chance that there will be a food safety policy that works yeah and i hope i live that long (laughs) um the uh yeah i do think there's a chance but it's certainly not going to happen if people aren't fighting for it or working toward it or trying to organize to it and i know there are groups that are already working on the next farm bill because they want the farm bill they want an agricultural policy that promotes public health now what's it going to take to get that what does that mean exactly though what do you mean by that when you say an agricultural policy Mm -hmm. that promotes public health okay i'll give you an example yeah, let's I've just finished. Together. I've just finished reading, um, and I spent hours doing it. The report from the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee that just came out a few weeks ago, and I didn't have a chance to read it when it first came out. So I've only just read it, and the science presented in the report, which is superbly presented, I thought. Uh, indicates very clearly that people would be healthier if they ate more fruits, vegetables, and whole grains and ate less high-fat meat dairy products. Um, Nowhere, and sodas, and snack foods. Um, Buried in one little sentence deep in the report uh, is the sentence, avoid uh, sugar-sweetened beverages or something like that. Nowhere in the report is there a statement that you should eat less meat and high, you know, high-fat meat and dairy products. And there's plenty of stuff about eating more, but there's nothing about eating less. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and this is a historical problem with the dietary mm. guidelines. They have never made clear statements about eating less. Instead, instead, they switch. Whenever they talk about eat less, they switch from food to nutrients. Eat less saturated fat. Eat less salt. Eat less sugar. They never talk about the foods that are the major sources of those. Or the volume that you consume at each Yes, or the volume. Even though this report has charts that show that 40% of sugars in American diets come from soft drinks. Mm -hmm. 
or or forty percent of the added sugars come from soft drinks. That's a good example. So the <laughs> so the you know the obvious the obvious response to a statement that nearly forty percent of the sugars in American diets come the added sugars come from soft drinks is drink less soft drinks. But how That's can you legislate ob- that? How do you legislate? You that? tax it. How do you, you ta- legislate? Okay, I'm all for it. that. But how do you? Okay, you can so tax that's one it. example of an agricultural policy, right? That would have tax an impact it. on public health. There, you can set up a, like a cigarette tax. It's I like mean, hard I, I'm love. all for that. You love the people, so you it's hard no, love. You, you can, can eat, set up regulatory costs- standards that say that no soft drink can have more than X sugar. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can do all kinds of things if there's a political will to do it. Yeah. Right. Which well, right on now- that note, um, if there's a political will to do it, there's a way. Uh, we're going to take our break. We're on our 20-minute segments. We're getting very NPR-ish in terms of our regimentation. <laughs> we're going to come back with a very fun segment, and if we have any callers, they can call in. We're going to do a rapid-fire 10 minutes where we're going to ask Marion to... This is a to- test, Marion. No. <laughs> She's on the hot seat, um, and we will come back in a minute uh, with some rapid-fire questions, then we'll get further into these issues with Mary. Okay, I'm doing a lot of... the main course. I'm Patrick Martins. I'm Katie Kiefer, and our guest today is the um, eminent uh, nutritionist and writer, Marion Nessel. Where are you from, Marion? Where were you born? Here, Brooklyn. Brooklyn, New York, huh? Absolutely. Didn't live here long, though. (laughs) And uh, let me ask you, before we get to this rapid fire, what is your diet? Oh, I follow my own advice. Follow your own advice. Which is eat less, move more, eat plenty of fruits, vegetables, and whole grains, and don't eat too much junk food. And it shows. And you don't eat meat? Yeah, I do. Sure. Sure, I do. Four or five times a week, or two, three times a week? I don't know. I eat small amounts of meat. I mean, I follow my own advice. I find it very easy to follow. the, The thing that I think 
when I go to the grocery store, I'm always amazed when I see people. I do not have soda in my house, for example. I mm-hmm. never buy soda. We don't eat, drink juice. Mm-hmm. I never let my kid eat, drink juice ever, mm-hmm. actually, unless I squeeze it. And we don't buy any snack foods. To the mm-hmm. great dismay of my child, is always like, Mommy, why can't we be like other families and have snacks? Because <laughs> we don't, I don't we want it. Food. We eat don't want food. it in the house. I don't want to eat it. I don't want you to eat it. And I think that if people could recognize that this is a major culprit mm-hmm. in their health problems, whether it's, you know, high blood sugar or overweight or less energy or whatever it is. I mean, even if it's Mm -hmm. something as intangible as less energy, um, it really does come down to what your nutritional content is in the Mm -hmm. food. And those snack foods simply don't have any. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I eat meat, I eat junk food. I just don't eat too much. That's right. Everything in moderation. Everything in moderation is so boring. We're going to go try to get too much out of Marion through rapid fire. So I am going to throw out a few words. And uh, and see, uh, Marion will, will give uh, shortish answers to them, and uh, we will. Uh, <laughs> no, or these questions. <laughs> or, I'm just supposed to give my response to the. It's sort of concept. like a Rorschach test. A Rorschach test. <laughs> they're, they're, okay, fine. they're coming from your own tag cloud, so <clears throat> okay. they're topics that you know. Um, mm-hmm. Supplements and vitamins. Well, everybody takes them. Everybody loves them. Everybody feels better when they take them, and there's absolutely no evidence whatsoever that they work. My doctor told me to take supplements of vitamin D. He said there have been studies that support the use of vitamin D oh, as, a, vitamin as a nutritional D. Vitamin D is what really is complicated. That? Well, vitamin D is, the is first of all, it's not a vitamin. It's something that's made in your skin if mm-hmm. you're out in the sun. If you're out in the sun, you really shouldn't need to take more, to take it, but a lot of people aren't. And what they say is that this latitude, even 15 minutes a day, is sufficient. He tested my blood for it, and oh, it yeah. came in as insufficient, right. according Every, to current guidelines. Right. Apparently, when they this do, has been revised. When they do studies of people in Hawaii, they find that they're deficient in the intermediate that is tested for, which makes me think that there's something wrong with the test. No doubt, yeah. Um, All right. They're well, testing for 25-hydroxy. It's, it's not vitamin D. It's an intermediate. Healthcare. Oh dear, we don't have a healthcare system, <laughs> and if we ate better, we wouldn't need as much healthcare, and that would be a good thing. All right, um, genetically modified foods. We had us uh, one of our listeners sent us in a uh, thing about how you know now they're going to genetically modify a tomato to taste better. That oh, that's where they started. Yeah, that was what was the that name was, of that, that tomato? Was the the well flavor, the flavor, flavor saver yeah. tomato. That was how it all started, and it started with a company in California that was extremely proud of the fact that mm-hmm. it was genetically engineered, and they put it they put it in production and it never worked because they had um, done it for temperate zone climates and then they tried to grow it in southern climates and all they got was tomato sauce. Yeah, and tomato it, mush. And it didn't yeah. work. I mean, I, my, the, addition, the new edition of Safe Food retitled The Politics of Food Safety has just come out and half of the book is devoted to a discussion of what the issues are. And what are some of the major food. issues? I mean, we don't know what the effects are, right? Well, we haven't seen any from the corn and soybeans that are on the market. Yes? I have a huge question for you. One thing I've noticed uh, as a consumer and just as kind of an empirical observation is many more people who complain of gluten intolerance or an intolerance to wheat and wheat products. I have, in my own crazy little mind, decided that this is a result of the introduction of genetically modified grains into our regular food chain, which happened, I'd say, on a 
very broad spectrum, probably about 15 years ago. Could and that it's be been true? Over no, that I time, think it's do you very think doubtful. that's true? I think it's very doubtful because the genetic modification didn't deal with the particular piece of gluten ah. that causes the problem. Why do so many more people have that? Nobody issue? knows. Nobody knows, and nobody knows whether I mean, there's no. It's being diagnosed more frequently, so mm-hmm. that's certainly part of it. And a lot of people think they have gluten intolerance when they, in fact, may have something else. But it also seems as if, in fact, as if rates of gluten intolerance are diagnosed, gluten intolerance are increasing, and nobody knows why. Just like allergies. Well, oh, really? Just because like food I'm allergies. very allergic, so I, you yeah, know, just like food. food but they're going up too. Is our knows body why. are our bodies evolving? Do you think? No, we don't evolve that fast. I'm just wondering. So, yeah, I mean, there I are lots like of so hypotheses. There's lots of hypotheses and no evidence. Yeah. So what is no. so GMO is not a bad thing yet. I mean, from what you're saying. Well, it depends on what you mean by bad and what criteria. Can that you you're disagree using. with it if it has no um, harmful effects? I think you can. I mean, the way that I put it is just because it's just because it's safe or appears to be safe, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's acceptable. But I mean, they 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 cross-breed, you know, Berkshire pigs with Tamworth pigs because a certain environment, you know, it's better adapted. I mean, And hybridization is always desirable, yeah, right? Yeah, I mean... Uh, not always, but sometimes, yes. So, um, you, so it could be, you know, part of the problem with genetically modified foods is that the hype, the hype doesn't uh, mesh with the reality. Mm-hmm. The hype is we're feeding the world, we're solving world hunger problems. Mm-hmm. The reality is that you're making a lot of money for uh, the owner, for Monsanto, which is the main company uh, that has a vertical system of um, gen- genetically engineering crops to be resistant to its own chemical. The problem mm. is, is that now the, the crops are no longer and now resistant. They're no longer there resistant. have been several pieces in the New York Times over right. the last couple of months that right. I've been following this story, yeah. um, where now farmers are back to having to, you know, rototill between the fields, mm-hmm. and they're losing their crop. They're losing uh, land erosion, or they're making more land erosion, and they're having to use more well, chemicals what's so on their crops. Inter- what's so interesting to me about the resistance to Roundup it was was that it was predicted from the get-go. Yes. I was on the FDA committee in 1994 uh, that was advising the FDA about approval of genetically modified foods, and that issue came up in that discussion, but nobody cared. Because hmm. they just wanted to make the money. By the way, well, Marion yeah. is uh, Jack's worst nightmare for tagging. <laughs> it is the hardest guest we've ever had to tag, <laughs> much less in a rapid-fire format. But... Uh, we're going to go gas drilling. Do you cover that issue? Um, at all? I talked about what's going on in the in the Gulf. Gulf I, mean, I haven't talked about us. gas drilling, which is what's going on in the Marcellus Shale. We are going to actually in, have some up guests in upstate here. New yeah. York, and because I live in Ithaca part time, I'm sort of aware of that issue. Um, well, and, tell us about the Gulf oil spill. Well, the Gulf oil spill. You know, I was just in New Orleans a couple of months ago, and I used to go to New Orleans a lot for professional meetings, and it was a lively, vibrant city. And post Katrina. It's just like a third world country. Um, I mean, the most astonishing thing to me about it was how beaten down everybody is. I mean, one person after another after another said, thank you for coming down here. It means so much to us that you came here. And I thought, that's amazing. It used to be a complete pleasure to come to this city. And now everybody is struggling and they're trying to create a decent food system there. They're trying to get people to grow food. I mean, there's all kinds of really interesting things going on. And then the oil spill happened. 
happened, yeah. which knocks out another huge segment of the economy in the Gulf. Well, but they, the people in the Gulf, and I'm sure everybody has heard some of the interviews with, uh, you know, it's it's divided between, it's not even divided between the shrimpers and the fishermen and the people who work on oil rigs, because the oil rigs are also a huge segment of the population of the uh, of the economy down there, and so many of the people I've heard interviewed are like, "No, we have to have drilling. We must continue to drill in the Gulf." Mm-hmm. It's sort of as if you know, well, you know, so that one part of the of the economy has been wiped out. We can't afford to have another mm-hmm. part of the economy destabilized mm-hmm. by regulating the oil industry in the Gulf now. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's it's a very a complex question, obviously, and I, right. I think it's going to be very difficult to sort this out. And it's why there are so many uh, non-governmental organizations that are flooding mm-hmm. the area trying to figure out other ways to improve the economy of the states around right. the Gulf, one of which is to grow food and to get involved in Self-sufficiency. Although self-sufficiency. I will admire one thing. After uh, BP people met with Obama, they now are running a series of claims ads where they are like, this is where you file a claim against us. And mm-hmm. I have to say, I admire that as a the most concrete way it's of dealing with the time. issues. I don't know if they're going to do it the right way or how those claims will play out, but I do admire that they're taking ads. All right, well, I have a couple more, and then I don't know, Katie, if you have it. The Center for Science and the Public Interest. Yeah, that's an advocacy group in Washington, D.C. That's basically the only game in town for nutrition nutrition and food advocacy. Um, They've been around almost 40 years. I think they're having their 40-year anniversary next year. Um, They've been run by Michael Jacobson, who has a doctorate in biochemistry and has run it since the early 1970s. And they do... an enormous amount of lobbying around food issues. They're in Congress all the time talking to Congress about what's going on. They publish a terrific newsletter called Nutrition Action Health Letter. And I don't agree with everything they do, but basically I'm a big supporter mm-hmm. of uh, their kind of activity because they're on the ground with Congress running and doing the politics that the rest of us can't do because we're mm-hmm. not there. Marion, can I ask you a question? I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah. Why are there not more nutritionists like you or more people with your background who are speaking out against or speaking up about national health, public health issues, you know, all of the, all of the topics that you address uh, so routinely in your work? I don't completely know the answer to that. I mean, I find that baffling. Um, I mean, I didn't go. I didn't. I didn't go through traditional (laughs) nutrition training for one thing, and I think part of nutrition standard nutrition training is that it beats out of you um, any kind of generalist approaches. And I'm a generalist, not a specialist. Universities don't like that. Um, You know, I was very, very fortunate in the way my career worked out. It certainly didn't start out looking like it was very promising. But I ended up being very lucky and landing in a place where I have a tenured position with a hard money salary, meaning that I don't have to raise my own money and I'm not beholden to anybody except my university. They like what I do. Um, But I think that's a very privileged position in this field. Now, what was it like uh, chairing uh, the Department of Nutrition and Food Studies and Public Health at New York University from 98 to 2003? Like 88. 88, 88, 88 sorry, to 2003. 2003. What was that? I mean, uh, that was, you were the first of your kind to start Well, it started out in home economics. 
It was oh, qu- that's it was, your big call, it was Katie. Ca- it I was, think home ec should come back to the school system. Right. It was called home economics when I got there. There was a department of home, home economics. economics and nutrition. And I was told to try to bring it into the 20th, if not the 21st century. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had a couple of lucky breaks. We had a hotel program that in the, in the department that another school at NYU wanted and they paid for it. And so they bought it from us. And that funding allowed us to start food studies. And by the time that happened, I already knew that there was a need for, because I was meeting loads of people who would, who would tell me, I just wish I could study about food. And so we were able to start undergraduate master's and doctoral programs in food studies at NYU in 1996. And how did the curriculum change from those early years to, for instance, where well, it is now? Well, it had a management component that was left, or it's, part of it was teaching about the culture of food. Um, and we teach people to read, write, and think about about food in the program. Um, it had a management component in the last couple of years that's been dropped, and we now have food and culture and food systems. So we're now doing everything from agriculture to public health in the department. The other programs are nutrition and public health. Mm-hmm. So uh, tell us, you have a PhD in molecular biology. What is that? (laughs) I mean, I was a nucleic acid enzymologist. Uh Wow, purification and properties. Those sound like crazy parties, right? (laughs) Right. um, I was uh, I had small children when I went to graduate school, and I discovered pretty quickly that I couldn't handle a family and a scientific career at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I took a teaching job, and at one point I was given a nutrition course to teach, and it was like falling in love, mm-hmm. and I've never looked back. How fantastic. We That's have uh, four more minutes for this. This is a great, great segment. Senior Nutrition Policy Advisor in the Department of Health and Human Services. What what role was that exactly? Well, I, I went to Washington in 1986 um, as a staff member of the Office of Disease Prevention and Health Promotion uh, with a fancy title, which you just said. Uh, but my job was to edit and produce the Surgeon General's Report on Nutrition and Health, which was the first federal wow. report on diet and chronic disease prevention. That's and I, I had just written a book the year before called Nutrition and Clinical Practice that reviewed everything about diet and health. And so I was well prepared for dealing with that. And I spent two years in Washington. I refer to it as my two years in federal prison. Because <laughs> um, I, I, I was in trouble all the time. Oh, really? <laughs> just constant I trouble. That. Well, you're a bomb throw. I do. No, she's an extinguisher. <laughs> I just, just, I was just in constant trouble, um, and the, re- the report came out on my watch, and I was lucky enough to have gotten credit for everything that was good about it, and my boss was blamed for everything that was bad about nice. it. Oh, how excellent! <laughs> awesome. Is it easy for you to write books now? I mean, uh, what advice? I mean, I was asked to write a book once. It was the most painful summer of my life, sitting at my uh, desk, forcing every sentence. Like, what advice do you have? Well, you write. You have to write every day. 
Mm-hmm. You have to write every single day. It's and, true. It is practice. And, and what I find, I mean, it was very hard for me at the beginning, and it's much easier now. Mm-hmm. And what changed, I think, first of all, I really like it. Not because the writing itself is so exciting or whatever, but because it really forces you to think. Mm-hmm. If you're going to, I, nutrition is very complicated. And what I try to do in all of my work is try to make it understandable. I don't try to minimize the complexity. I just try to make it honest and clear. And I find the process of clarifying my own thinking to be mm-hmm. a lot of fun to do. I mm-hmm. like doing it. Well, you're it. doing a great job if Katie gets it. So yeah. uh, that's awesome. <laughs> um, I have two more. And then uh, we'll take a break and oh, come back with our last. But I have, I have one more. Thing. Rapid fire questions? No, well, not really. Well, kind of, yeah. Okay, well, listen. Now, let me do my first. Then we have time. But we'll go real quick. You have 10 seconds on each. No. <laughs> European, I was interested to see this in your tag count as a large tag, meaning people have clicked on it. It's an issue important to you. European Food Safety Authority. Yeah, they're the group in Europe that is ruling on health claims um, and some other issues. Uh, Even though it says food safety, they're really doing everything about food. Mm -hmm. And they're the group that opened up the Pandora's box of health claims and was shocked to find that they got more than 40,000 requests from food manufacturers for health claims on their products, and they're now trying to deal with them. Well, uh, we have one more segment with uh, Marion, but um, you go now. I'm going to ask the starvation hunger question in relation to the price of food question I have for the next segment. So okay. do you have more rapid fires? I, not really. I, I, this is something I picked up off of your blog um, when I was uh, you know, sort of <laughs> checking, your out, checking you out, Marion. <laughs> I mean, Making I sure she's you. legit. Yeah, no, no, no. Well, I wanted to have all the titles of your books, for one thing. Um, but I saw on your blog that you had, um, you had sort of a Q&A with Bill Marler, who has been very active in... Um, uh, prosecuting food uh, food safety cases, and um, I often read something. In fact, I read it every day. It's called MeetingPlace.com, and this is a blog that is put up mm-hmm. by the cattle industry um, by Beef.org or Beef Checkoff, whatever. Anyway, the fifth point that that uh, Bill Marler makes on this Q and A is. Fifth, do not blame your customers. If your food has a pathogen, this is going back to our food safety discussion, it is not your customer's responsibility to handle it like it will likely kill them or a member of their family. Hoping that the consumer will fix your mistake takes your eyes off of avoiding the mistake in the first place. And this is something that comes up on this blog all the time. And this is something that I think is really key um, for consumers to recognize is that the the meat industry has a very obviously a very powerful interest in trying to shift all of the blame mm-hmm. off of what they're doing onto what you're doing. And so I, I, I guess my point in asking is bringing this up is, is what are sort of, where does the, where does the mean lie there between people taking their own responsibility about what they eat aside from where they source it? Okay. Say you're not sourcing it particularly carefully. You're just some Joe blow. You go to the supermarket, you buy something. And do you really, I mean, the meat industry would have people believe and is, has a very strong public awareness campaign campaign to cook your beef to 160 degrees or 108 I think it's 160 degrees to kill the pathogens 65 which doesn't even actually necessarily always work um but where you know where do people draw the line and how do people protect themselves um in the sense that if they don't or even if they do and they still get sick or how do they you know how do you make sure that the meat industry doesn't say I'm sorry it's your fault 
Well, this is politics. I mean, this is what politics is about. Yeah. And the, you know, I mean, I've always said that the only way we're going to get decent food safety regulation in this country is if some very powerful senior senator has somebody in his family who gets sick from food poisoning. And mm-hmm. I wouldn't wish that on anybody. But I think that's the only thing that's going to do it. Because then some powerful senator will take responsibility mm-hmm. uh, for trying to get food safety legislation passed. And what's happening with food safety legislation is so appalling right now that it's almost impossible to talk about. The House passed a food safety bill last August. The Senate has not moved on it since. It's been almost a year. And they haven't budged. So it's the lobbies of the cattle or the or the protein industry it's the that food are industry in general they don't want to have slowing to, that down they do not want to have to have compulsory HACCP because they feed the world that's their argument let us keep us from a starvation mentality and then as a result they don't move well we're going to stick to our 20 minutes we're going to come back for a final segment with marion then we're going to have larry bocal who's going to break down the inner workings of the distribution network then we have sam edwards uh major oh, yeah. ham cure and john caney that's from, right uh, it's caney a fancy food. food show yeah it's a fancy food show weekend Makes a man a man She'll talk about the times that she's been with you And she'll speak your name everyone she can She's a devil in disguise You can't see it in her eyes She's telling dirty lies She's a devil in disguise In disguise close companion Her world is filled with jealousy and doubt It sets her off to see somebody crying And she's just the kind that you can't live without She's a devil in disguise You can't see it in her eyes She's telling dirty lies She's a devil in disguise In
this is the main course with uh, Inher- oh, with Inher- Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, with Patrick Martins. Our guest today has been the wonderful Marion Nessel. Um, and Marion, before uh, we sign off with you, which I hope won't be too, too soon, but um, let's talk a little bit about your blog, which I thought was just fantastic. It's uh, foodpolitics.com, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and you also, you told me in the break just now, are an avid Twitterer, which is a technology, <laughs> I, I admit, I still haven't really totally mastered, but clearly it's working for you. Tell us how you use that. Well, it started out because some young techie friends of mine hooked the blog up to Twitter so that the blog automatically went out over Twitter. And um, one day somebody said, do you have any idea how many Twitter followers you have? And I said, no, I don't have the slightest idea. I have 11. And I... I have just I have just under twenty four thousand. Good oh lord! My God. Oh. So you are tweeting the world, yeah, really. and I it's mean, going up. It goes up by about a thousand a week. I don't know who those people are, but mm-hmm. I love every one of them. And you should. And your no. blog is really fantastic. What is the goal of your blog versus another blog? Like, does it well, have a mission? Well, I, it started out with what to eat. When the publisher of What to Eat was interested in trying to figure out how you could use social media to promote books, mm-hmm. and they wanted to use me as a guinea pig and they agreed to build the site which was a huge Mm -hmm. investment that is huge so I agreed to do it and I started out with a different site name and then when I'd been doing it for about a year I realized I had to bring all the pieces of it together so foodpolitics.com has everything on it it has my daily blog but it also has stuff about me my CV all my publications articles uh, you've written every article that I write I put up there at least in recent years and that sort of of thing and all that kind of thing and even little sort of like uh, explanations of what your books are about I mean it was it was so wonderful and comprehensive yeah, because just, in preparing for the interview I mean I, I wanted to actually sort of know like the whole scope yeah, of your so, work I mean, you know, so. it's one stop shopping if there's anything that you want to know about me it's all there and it's it has made it very easy in my dealings with reporters um, you're like just read the Twitter they can just read they can just read <laughs> well the, just jump around on the blog because it really is so comprehensive and so interesting and that's uh-huh. where I got this question about you know from uh, uh, Bill Marler, this sort uh-huh. of talking points on how you know how the meat industry can account for itself yeah, in the public in terms Bill of its Marler, public health and safety. Who's, Bill Marler is a class action lawyer in San Francisco who's made a very nice living off of suing corporations that poison consumers. Mm. And I thought that his this particular piece of his in which he talked about what he would do if he were the CEO of a food company that was faced with a recall was really nice for the ethical standard that it that it discussed. I mean, don't blame your customers was one of them. Well, take that, res- yeah, that was take, sort of my thing. Take, take like, responsibility, responsibility for well, it. Well, he even says, were wrong. apologize. And I thought to myself, well, now that's, I really don't care if somebody apologizes well, or BP not. Did. I want them to actually do make something good. Yeah. yeah. You know, well, change I, your policies. Yeah, I was hoping that he would respond to my comment at the end was, are there any companies that have actually did this? Mm-hmm. You know, that, does he know of any companies that really followed his advice? Um, but he hasn't said anything about that, although I think he might after a while. Uh, but I admire the work that he's doing a lot. He really cares about the people who well, have been hit by Well, he defended the young dancer who was That's uh, killed right. by, who, That's not right. killed, but who was paralyzed yeah, by the right. E. coli last year and that now, was in the Times. What is the role of media? You're starting, I know you have a San Francisco Chronicle article, which I think is, uh, a column, which I think is great. 
great that they give you that. And it sounds like you've started your own independent orbit with Twitter and all that. But tell me about the role of the media, the, you know, New York Times food section, Bon Appetit, food and wine, you know, with all these important issues, are they doing their job of covering these issues for the reading public? Well, some pe- some are and some aren't. Um, you like, know, what I, do you use as resources? Oh, for I read I read the New York Times, of course, and I also read an enormous number of professional journals, so yeah. I keep up with the science. Um, but I get a lot of information because people send me things via email. I mean, and I would say most of the information that I'm getting is coming in that way. I read a few other people's newsletters, mm-hmm. um, but really that's all. I mean, I have a full-time job mm-hmm. and can only spend a very limited amount of time doing this kind of thing. But for me, I, you know, I started out doing the blog because I was doing a favor for the publisher, and I started using it immediately as a file cabinet. It's an electronic file cabinet with an index. The cloud, the tag cloud, mm-hmm. is an index uh, to the subjects that I'm talking about, but I would be filing those subjects anyway. And for me, it's a terrific way to, to recall information. If I needed, I try to link always to the original documents. Um, so I think it's a phenomenal resource for students uh, who are just learning these things because they can Absolutely. click on a topic and read the original documents and they're all right there. Yeah. Now, what um, is this total umbrella discipline? I mean, is it food studies? Because I always remember Carlo always wanted gastronomy to be its own discipline. And there's such a gastronomic aspect to what you're talking about. Like, what is the state of gastronomy as a discipline? Well, and how would you define your discipline? I don't think gastronomy works at academic institutions. And so when it came time for... Boston University had already done a gastronomy program in 1996 when we started food studies. Um, and I just didn't think it worked. Because? Th- because it doesn't sound academically serious enough. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's about cooking. And that's mm-hmm. not... We wanted and to be, taste. And taste. And we wanted, it, we wanted cooking in taste, but we wanted it to be much more than that. And universities do lots of programs that have studies in their title. Uh, Film studies, Africana studies, music studies, whatever. Food studies worked for that and are the school that I'm in at NYU thought it would work and said we could try it and for a couple of years and see how it worked and if it worked we could keep it and if not we would get rid of it and we were lucky enough that the New York Times wrote about our program a week after the state approved it mm. and which happened in the middle of the summer so we had people in our office that afternoon it was in the Wednesday food section and we had people in our office that afternoon holding up copies of that clipping and saying I've waited all my life for this program and we had a class in the fall and we've had classes ever since and we're just overflowing with applicants for the program we can't fit them all in our classes are stuffed it's really a very exciting environment do you ever teach the 101 class the intro classes anymore like where do you pick and choose how you're going to spend interactive time in the classroom well my deal with the university at this point is I teach one class a semester and I want to teach classes that bring together students in all three of our programs nutrition food studies and public health because to me they're all inextricably linked so over the last and I never teach the same course two years in a row so over the last year I've taught nutrition and public health food sociology food ethics in the fall I'm teaching food policy 
My last question, and then we'll have a few minutes for Katie to wrap up and ask you her final questions. But um, how do you navigate this elitist issue? Because most people, when they promote a sustainable viewpoint, you know, they're proposing food that's more expensive, where you seem to be talking about eating less of things and being smarter about your choices and kind of a scientific bent. So, you know, is slow food or, you know, good, clean and fair food more expensive? How much more expensive? How do you navigate that whole oh, argument? Oh, I have two answers for it. First of all, the elitist argument, um, it's got it's to gotta start someplace. Movement mm-hmm. starts someplace. I teach courses in social movements. And as I once heard Eric Schlosser say, that some of the most important movements in America society, the civil rights movement, women's suffrage, and the environmental movement started with the elites and then trickled down. But the argument about the cost is a political argument. Um, I've just seen the Commerce Department statistics on the relative rise in cost of fresh fruits and vegetables as opposed to sodas and other processed foods. The relative cost of fruits and vegetables has gone up by 40% since 1980. Mm. The relative cost of junk foods has gone down by 40%. That's our food policy. That's not it's something your subsidies that, at work. Yeah, the subsidies at work. This isn't something that's inevitable. This is something that's built into our political system. It's a political choice. Political choices can be changed. Um, so if we're, you know, if the cost of fresh fruits and vegetables is high, let's fix it. That's a fixable problem. Mm-hmm fascinating very interesting yeah so it's really about the politics it's really it really does come down to the farm bill to lobbying your congressmen and lobbying your senators and exercising your democratic rights rights as citizens i think of food as being the most democratic political arena Mm -hmm. that you can think of because everybody eats so this is a day this is democracy in action absolutely well one of the things that um came up for me was talking about since we're talking about politics is the corporate uh you know corporate interests this goes back to our discussion about regulations at the t- at the beginning of the program corporate interests in the lunchroom and on television and how can the administration how can we exercise our democratic rights to wrest control over these you know over the lunchroom and over advertising to children and adults i know that for instance kellogg's and some of the other program you know uh, advertising agencies that that deal with um, products like the kellogg's cereals and so forth have had to ratchet back what they are allowed to say mm-hmm. um, on saturday morning cartoon uh, programs mm-hmm. or children's around children's programming um, how can we push more and and will you know the strategy for cigarette advertising which is, I think, a good sort of corollary to this, um, or a, a good parallel uh, issue. When they changed the um, the policy around advertising and cigarettes aimed towards young people or cigarettes, they banned advertising in the media. Basically. No camels, right, and no uh, big ads. Well, not only that, yeah, but you couldn't have uh, you couldn't have those uh, full page spread ads in in you know Times Mag in the Times Magazine every Sunday, and you couldn't advertise cigarettes on television. Now, can we? I mean, why can't we implement those same changes? Or will we be able to, I guess is more the point, how much of a stranglehold do corporations have on uh, policymakers when it comes to doing things like changing the way they advertise or limiting their ability to advertise to children? Uh, There's a big First Amendment issue that is used as the red flag in all of this. And, you know, the way I discuss it is it's... 
I always thought that the law had a great deal to do with intent. And it's hard for me to believe that the founding fathers in developing the First Amendment uh, had in mind the ability of food manufacturers to market junk foods to kids. <laughs> but that's the way the courts have interpreted it. And I think part of that, I mean, I gave a talk at FDA this year, and in discussing this precise issue, I said, I think you ought to fire all your lawyers. Because the FDA <laughs> law, because the FDA lost so many First Amendment cases yeah. over food advertising, and they assured me that they had recruited new lawyers to come in who were going to help the agency regulate rather than discourage the agency from being able to regulate. So they're still trying to overcome the last eight years of deregulatory pressure, but this is a political issue like every other. Um, and obesity is such a serious health problem in this country, or will mm. be. We didn't what even do you talk about obesity. We didn't, but let's just quickly say, what do you anticipate are the costs of obesity? to the taxpayer of obesity over the next 25 years? Yeah, I don't know what the numbers are specifically, and I hear lots of numbers, I don't know what they mean, but the personal costs of type 2 diabetes are not something you'd want to wish on anybody. Well, today on the train, as I was coming here, I saw this kind of slightly heroic moment when a woman was collapsing in a, in, into diabetic shock. Um, because A, she hasn't gotten the healthcare information mm -hmm. that is required to manage her disease, and she was not carrying glucose tablets, and she didn't have any food, and she hadn't eaten. So clearly she's not managing her disease. And on the train, the man who with her was hysterical, and on the train, luckily, was another young woman who was diabetic and who had something mm -hmm. with her that she could give this woman. And to me, it was like the perfect example of, you know, A, the failure of the healthcare thing, and also how serious diabetes is. I mean, the little the it's young life woman. Threatening. The young woman said to me after she had given this lady the the glucose tablets, she said that woman could have died within twenty minutes. That's right, I and and there is only one comprehensive diabetes clinic in New York City for the entire population. That's incredible. One we have, we singular. Must, we must have millions yes, of diabetic and more people in every this country. Day. I mean, in the city. And even. most of them aren't diagnosed. And more and more and more every day as overweight becomes a more and more serious problem. Now, it's not that every overweight person gets to type, type 2 diabetes, but the percentages are rising in parallel with rising rates of obesity. Um, and for that alone, you don't need to talk about anything else. It's funny, every guest we've ever had, I'm always like, so you did pretty well with Mary, and I'm like, how did we do? Give us a report <laughs> card. Did we pass? You want me to give you a grade? Will you come back? <laughs> That's right. I'd be delighted. Oh, we hope so. I'm like, how come Katie gets two smiley faces? That's BS, man. <laughs> Anyway, well, this has been amazing. And you, um, you say you have no pets, huh? Not at the moment. Not at the moment. I travel too much. Yes. I, yes. I have two Scottish Terriers who... Um, I'm sorry they're not they here. they didn't call in. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, anyway, this has been amazing. It's, uh, you're in the neighborhood, so uh, or easy to get to, so let I me, hope we see you many. Let me quickly plug your uh, books. Please. Just one more time. Because oh, you by do. all means. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so what has uh, just been republished in a revised and expanded edition Feed is your, your fantastic... Right. No, is Safe Food, The Politics of Food Safety, which is a, a revamp of the politics of, of pet food, food politics. Pet food politics. Um, and then Feed Your Pet Right, which also came out this year. Boy, are you prolific, lady. What to eat. Yep. Food Politics, which is the first edition, and that's 2007. How Taking the food sides. industry influences. That was very interesting. I took a class last year with Andy Smith at the New School, and he assigned that book to us. Which? Um, Taking Sides. Oh, did he? Yes. It's getting a little out of date. It's a little, but it was a very... Because it was... 
it, it illustrated very neatly um, the many strong and important sort of sides of each like you can't just assume that one side is right over the other side and i yeah. thought that, that it was it was neat the way that you and your um co-author uh sort of presented these these hot arguments yeah and it's too bad it was a great book but we had a horrible 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 experience with the publisher oh well having worked so, in publishing, so we've, been, we've been we've been somehow fired. not surprised so we've been fired katie being a colleague of gutenberg can certainly <laughs> relate to the trials and tribulations <laughs> of publishing <laughs> over the centuries yeah we were f- we were fired from that book oh shame on them well you know you'll come back I mean, you have gone back. And then in 2003, you published Safe Food, Bacteria, Biotechnology, and Bioterrorism. Um, and that's something we will talk about the next time you come on, um, securing the foods, um, the safety of the food supply and bioterrorism in the food system, which I if think is fascinating. Food, if we had a food system, it would be better. Yeah. We, we don't them. have one. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, to follow up, Marion, you know, who's uh, so many concrete things, we're going to have one of our favorite guests of all time, Larry Bokel, come and talk about the very nitty gritty, we didn't really deal with this with Marion today, of distribution. One and of my how, favorite topics. But, I mean, literally from the trucker's perspective and the obstacles and the regulations that they have to deal with, it's a huge bottleneck. So, um, And then we'll, we'll have Sam Edwards and uh, people from the Hearst Ranch That's as right. uh, guests. And for we'll the talk last. Fancy Food Show, which is ongoing. It started, yeah. I think, today is the first day. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're welcome. So yeah. actually, do we have Larry on the phone? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, Larry, are you with us? Wait, wait, wait. Let's I- take... Oh, should we? Let's take a one minute break because I think one Marian minute wants break. Marion has to has yeah. it. Okay, Larry, stay on for thirty seconds. We're just going to say goodbye to Marion, and then we have some good questions for you. Will do. Thank you. That was fun. might have been our biggest guest ever. I, I, I'm so in love. So yeah. in love. But we also in love with Larry Bokel, who's on the line with us right now. Larry gave us hey, one Larry. of our best interviews ever. Yeah, hey, Larry, Larry. You're, you're the man, too. We love you. <laughs> cool. Thank you very much. How are you? We're great. We're fabulous. Where are you? Well, I'm in Omaha, Nebraska this afternoon. All righty, then. And Omaha, what, you, what you got on the truck? Well, he's well, the guy who organizes all the trucks. Metaphorically speaking. We've got about 65 trailer loads of LTL refrigerator freight that left the terminal late last night and are on the road to start delivery Monday. 
Fantastic. Now, Marion was talking about all these, you know, sad stories of, you know, smaller businesses, you know, quality businesses that cannot break through this concentration, like especially in the food industry from, uh, you know, the horse's mouth, from someone who's in the trenches and is, you know, living in that business from, uh, you know, Monday to Friday. How do you describe that concentration? How does it manifest itself in that magical world of distribution? It's a word everyone knows uh, but doesn't understand. So, I mean, how is there bottlenecks? I mean, how is the distribution issue an issue for those companies? Well, I think what what uh, what I'd really like to explain is a small guy really now today does have the ability to compete with the larger manufacturers as Heritage and Cannonball Express know, uh, we're able to service a small customer and deliver it in what I call truckload speed, where the big guys are generally purchasing truckload volume from large manufacturers, and what they do is what's important in the food chain is short shelf life delivery from the date of manufacture. So, for instance, if you manufacture something Thursday, Friday, Truckload speed is delivering it to the end user on on Monday morning, and that's what a small manufacturer can do with an LTL refrigerated carrier. But they, does they that can, LTLs? I mean, are there enough LTL characters uh, carriers like yourself to cover the nation, or does it only happen from the Midwest out, or is it well, actually available to everyone? There are three or four uh, carriers like ours that deliver nationally. But there are many, many small local menu, uh, carriers that deliver LTL in small regions, for instance, of four or five state regions where they supply transportation. Can I? There can are I inter- only. Oh, sorry. Sure. Go ahead. I'm going to interrupt you right now because I want to make yes. sure that people understand that LTL means less than load, and what That's that correct. means is that it's not the typical semi-filled. It means mm-hmm. that you don't have to be a supplier who has to fill up with 17 pallets mm-hmm. or however many You can pallets. literally have 10 pounds that have, get shipped, yeah. and you'll pay... And somebody you know. like Larry is going to move that right. product for you, and that yep. is not typical. And I, I just wanted to make sure that that's people understood that that's what you... That's right. Most, that's most, of, our customers ship about, uh, most of our customers ship about two to 4,000 pounds. Huh. And, and what is the typical to, load? What's to contrast that? What is the typical load? Well, a full a truck load, load is, is about forty-four thousand pounds. Okay, would be so a truck that's load. huge, right? Okay. So when you ship two to four thousand pounds, you're basically a small manufacturer selling a small order to a to a customer anywhere in the country, and it's difficult to get that small of a volume to that customer in as fast of speed as if they purchased a truckload right now let me ask do you do a lot of pet food shipments because we just had marion talking about her book on pet food we're about 15 percent of our volume is pet food and does Um, it come from the do you pick up that stuff from the same place that you pick up human foods because i mean is it like one company no they're separate individual pet food companies the companies we deal with are only purely just dog food manufacturers Hmm. And they've got into what they call ice cream treats just recently, where basically the uh, ice, the dog food is like a frozen ice cream, and it's sold in a frozen case in the pet local pet, pet food stores and goes also to breeders. So we do have a rather large percentage of our transportation is supplying pet food manufacturers now with fresh and, the and reason, frozen and items. And so 
the reason that uh, that you're working with these pet, I mean, we were just talking about the amount of real estate that goes into the pet food industry. So, um, mm-hmm. so when you say fifteen percent of your volume of your business is pet foods, that's that's a very considerable sum. That's a large is. figure, isn't it? So, it is. Um, animal byproducts are are basically what that is. So you're shipping. Are you are you working with small, um, you know, small farms or smaller? Uh, what do you call it, slaughterhouse and packing facilities, and then you're moving that product into pet food companies, into more boutique like pet food companies? Like, are you moving the cans? Or, or are, are you, you moving, moving the, the cans? Yeah. I generally handle finished products. Uh-huh. So the, the product that I transport is the finished goods going to the retail or the food service location. Gotcha. I don't haul, as you put it, inedible products like bone or, or meal into manufacturers where they make pet foods. Mm-hmm. I haul the finished product out of the pet food. I see. But so you're working with smaller pet food manufacturers as opposed to like the Ralston Purina type guys. I work with small and large. Ah. And yes. uh, give us an example. Now you're an independent. You you contract independent drivers, so you support basically the trucking culture that we know from Smoke and the Bandit movies <laughs> all the way through <laughs> Willie Nelson. I know that's really where they are too, right? No, but that's listen, right. There was a very big trucking culture. I mean, Larry, last time he was on, was talking about how you know you used to know most of the truckers on the road. And so right. there was a certain camaraderie. There was a oh, certain yeah. language a fraternity, that existed. I can imagine that, now that easily. Fraternities become greatly loosened, but you maintain mostly independent drivers who choose to work with Cannonball, right? You don't uh, sign them on as lifers, or, or, or do you do both? Well, what we, what we run is what we call owner operators. The driver owns his truck and trailer, and he's an independent businessman. Uh-huh. But he runs under my transportation authority my DOT number, so any transportation services he provides with his truck and trailer must be under my direction. He can't go out and freelance. Huh. So you do have... Very interesting. So he's, con- he's contracted to it. Yeah, he's an independent contractor. Right? Now, last time sense. you were on, Larry, you were right. telling us about new regulations that were kind of hurting truckers in terms of the amount of hours that they were able to go straight without resting and, 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 and certain reports, almost like HACCP plans themselves, that they had to report and that that was going to be a real impediment to their success. Uh, do you remember what I'm talking about? Yeah, I do. It's not really a negative necessarily, Patrick, but it's much more regulations than we've had in the past. And I'll just use you for instance. We're required now to sleep in the sleeper berth for 10 hours after 11 hours work. Wow, who sleeps for 10 hours? Yeah, there aren't (laughs) any people in this world that can sleep for 10 hours anymore. So uh, that's kind of uh, an extreme, uh, but it's the rule. You know, you're allowed to work, drive 11 hours, and work in a 14-hour period, and then you must go to your sleeper berth for 10 hours before you can continue to work. You mean you mm-hmm. can't even spend some of that time, like, out playing cards with your fellow truckers at the truck you stop? You have to be in REM actually... sleep. Yeah. Yeah, you can't be in the truck stop eating Taco Bell and watching TV. You've got to be in your sleeper berth for the 10-hour period. Wow. That is crazy. And how do they regulate that, Larry? Well, it's, con- it's controlled by a logbook. And each driver has to log every 15 minutes of his day. And if he should ever be inspected at scales or a DOT stop, most DOT officers will uh, review your logbook to make sure it's legal and accurate. So, but then it, that means if you have to, you have to enter every 15 minutes that you're sleeping. No, every 15 minutes of every day of your life. Wow. Sleeping, driving, working, or but off duty. But then you're duty. not sleeping if you're up logging your thing. Oh, no, they can log well, it when they wake back up. 
Yeah, you go for 10 hours sleep, and then you wake up and you draw your line through your logbook for 10 hours. Oh, I would just lie. <laughs> I would just lie. Well, Katie, that's why you're not a tra- <laughs> But, um, because, well, that's our, a kind of nonsensical regulation, though, that yeah, is a colossal waste of time and money, don't you think? Well, what yeah, is but, the uh, biggest obstacle for a less than load? I mean, I view you almost like an elf in, like, elves that, like, come in and save the world <laughs> for businesses like mine. But, like, what is the biggest obstacle for a less than load carrier in 2010? Well, a less than load carrier, and we don't have many of these instances, but when you arrive at a customer's location, and let's imagine you have an 8 a.m. delivery time, and you're there till 1 p.m. Yeah. delivering one pallet, and you're there five hours, mm-hmm. your guy that has the 11 a.m. appointment and the guy that has the 2 p.m. appointment are now waiting for their freight because you're sitting at a dock somewhere from 8 a.m. till 1 p.m. Oh, trying to deliver one pallet of freight. Uh-huh. So we really ask and need the receivers of our the freight to accept the freight when they give us their appointment time so we can get on our way to our next customer because mm-hmm. generally you're servicing four or five customers each day mm-hmm. with four or five deliveries. So you, you can't sit two to four to five hours unloading. Where a truckload carrier, you, you bump their dock with a full truckload and you've got to sleep 10 hours. So you'll bump the dock and you're happy to sit there for 10 hours while they unload because you can't drive anyway. You have to sure. go to your sleeper berth. So LTL, we have to keep moving. We have to move along. We have to get in and out. So that's our biggest challenge of the day when we have to do do those stops like that. Very, very interesting. Well, um, you were one of our best interviews. We had Marion Nessel on. We wanted to follow that with uh, another great interview. It was just a few minutes, but uh, the check is in the mail, Larry. And uh, <laughs> appreciate the time. Just, just kidding. And it's well, always a pleasure to have you on, Larry. I yeah. think that people well, need to think yes. more about how food Absolutely. gets where it's going. And it's guys like you that support the smaller producers uh-huh. that we all want so much to see succeed. We and have Marion Right. And Nestle and, and all these people on, but it, the, all of their we want to change the world happens on the wheels of American yeah. truckers. That's right. And Larry runs one of the best, uh, you know, examples Thank of that. You, so, all right, Thank Larry. You. Well, we'll see you on here again soon, and uh, we'll time. take a break and come back Thanks with so uh, much Sam for your time, Edwards. Larry. Yep. You're welcome. Enjoy your day. Thank you, man. Wonder waiting, will he return to me? Or will I wait for 
We are back with Michael Caney. And Sam Edwards. Sam Edwards. This is the main course on Heritage Radio Network. Our- we are located at Roberta's in Bushwick, 261 Moore Street. You guys come down for a pizza pie. And we're supported today by TechServe. And I want to just read one more time that TechServe is having this fantastic e-waste recycling event created to help keep hazardous materials out of landfills by recycling electronics it's very hard to get rid of your computers if you know i mean if you know i'm sure people have had this experience but when you have electronics you don't want to put them in the dump you don't want to put them in your trash they really do need to be dealt with in a very specific way and TechServe is providing a tremendous public uh service by offering this event on um Saturday, July 10th from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. And I did ask them your question if you could bring your phonograph and manual typewriters from the early 19th century when you were growing up. And what did they say? They said yes. Really? Yes. Oh, that's so generous. They're going to put them in their collection. I know what they're going to do with those. (laughs) So um, we have had an amazing show today. And now we are joined by the one and only, the fantastic Sam Edwards um, from Wallace Edwards & Son down in Surrey, Virginia. Thank you for having me. And um, Michael? Tell me your last name. It's Caney. Michael Caney, and you're yes. from the Hearst Ranch. Uh, actually, Caney Foods. Caney we're Foods. We're partnered with Hearst Ranch. Correct. Oh. They just actually tell us a I little didn't bit realize since that's that you the were... big tell news. Me, tell me the story. The big it's news. a big uh, deal. The, the big news is that the Hearst uh, Corporation just recently purchased a new meat proce- processing facility. Oh, my God, how fantastic. Rubles. Yep, it's uh, USDA inspected. It's going to be opening here very soon. Mm-hmm. Probably in the next two weeks or so. You mean here in the New York Paso City? Paso Robles, uh, California. Oh, Paso Robles. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Other side. 3,000 yeah, yeah, miles yeah, the other yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, on the left coast. And one of the big supplies that are going to be going through that processing plant is the cattle that are raised on the Hearst Ranch. The 100% grass-fed Hearst beef, yes. Grass-fed and grass-finished. Fantastic. We like yes. to make that point because yes. all cattle is fed on grass in the beginning. <laughs> But uh, you guys are more than that. I mean, that's a component of your business. I mean, the Caneys uh, go back three generations, like Correct. the Edwardses do here on the East Coast, and you're full broadline distributors. Correct. Everything from bounty paper towels to espresso machines and everything in between. You need it, we get it. Yep. And uh, who wow. do you service out there on the West Coast? Um, we have 600 different customers, okay. ranging from fine dining all the way to just your uh, burger in and out location, mm-hmm. all the way to uh, schools. And do you do in and out? What's that? You do literally? No, do, we um, don't do the. Oh, so you have the. You've had the in and out. Yes, yeah. yes. No. Well, I've heard a rumor that in and out is considering opening a, a franchise or a, a store location here in New York. Really? Yeah, uh, it would be. We've got a lot of new burger joints in New York. It's a real big trend here right now because we've got the five napkin burger. We've got Big Daddy's and right. Yeah, and then Freddy have, or what's that? I mean, BLT just opened the Go Burger truck. They're rolling food truck. Uh, you know that serves their um, you know specialty brand of hamburgers mm-hmm. so um yeah the burger is is sort of king right now in new york so tell us uh, just briefly uh where did that company start like it started in the 60s or 50s or something uh, 1955 was when my uh, grandfather started okay. wow. uh, down in san Bernardino, california hmm. and uh, uh it expanded up to san Luis Obispo in 1972 and the facility that we're currently working out of is the same facility that was open then and um yeah. So, um, and there's a connection personally because both Her- Heritage Foods relies on both Caney Foods and uh, S. Wallace Edwards and Sons to help distribute its products to mm-hmm. its mail order customers and also give it access to different supplies. 
So Sam, now you are not a broadline distributor, but I bet you have close to 600 customers altogether too for people that you service with an all Virginia supply of products. Yeah, we sell uh, similar in a lot of ways. Uh, it's not not as broad line, but the products that we make to um, well over 2,000 <laughs> food service uh, customers, but we also sell direct to consumers too. Which is you up have in a store, right? Yeah, yeah, we have two stores. Three stores. Yeah. Oh, I thought you were opening a third. Well, yeah, well, third's on the on the um, radar. We just haven't opened it yet. I see. That was a secret. And Sam, you have a new product that you're bringing. You're at the Fancy Food Show, which opened. Right. Is that open today or yesterday? Yeah, open today. Open today. I can't believe you're sitting here at Roberta's. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> he has the staff. I know, but still. <laughs> uh, that's very generous of you to give us your time today. You have a new product, though. Did you, did you bring it to the show? You yes. Have a new ham? That yes. We're, we're, uh, we've been, and actually it goes back to a product that my grandfather developed. Mm-hmm. Uh, he learned from a, in the 1920s, but back in the 1800s, actually. And uh, we're when duplicating. I was just a child. <laughs> <laughs> we're duplicating that same process, except uh, one of the difficulties we've had over the course of time is finding good quality pork. Um, don't know how, but Pat- Patrick and I have talked about it before. How do we find each other? But he's connecting with farmers in Iowa and Missouri and providing us with Berkshire. Tamworth, Red Waddles, pasture-raised, certified humane, antibiotic-free pork. And whatever he da- can't sell to hit the chef connections that he has across this country, we take at the end of the week. And uh-huh. we take those hams and bellies and trim, turn them into sausage, bacon, and these Suriano hams. And Suriano hams are the ones that I guess has gotten the most press recently. Um, well, you debuted that last year at the Fancy Food right. Show because I remember trying it. It was right. really outstanding. And, now, to car- and to carry it one step further, we're, we're actually shipping peanuts to these farmers, and they're, f- they're finishing these hogs off on peanuts. Right. But also plums and yep. cranberries. Yep. We've got all kinds of tests going with that, with that product. Uh-huh. So now that you've got the pig breed down, mm-hmm. now you're messing around with the feed to see what produces the very best tasting right. pork right. that you can. And, right. then, and then and the... Uh, results of that are just now coming to fruition in July, August, September of this year. And mm-hmm. so far, I like what I see, especially with the, with the uh, peanuts. The, the yeah. plum and the cranberry haven't uh, finished aging quite yet, but uh, right. we look forward to it. So these are all in your Suriano ham uh, category. Surrey Farms. But is they're, the, but they're yeah. going to be different. The, the What the feed is is going to have a de- an impact on the outcome of the flavor. That's the intent. That's the intent. And we hope the result. Right. <laughs> so now you are more independent, right? I mean, you're A to Z um, at, at, at Caney Foods. You, how, For instance, how many trucks do you have? Uh, we run just between 22 to 26 trucks uh, four days a week. And those are going both to L.A. and San Francisco, San Francisco. daily? Correct. Okay. And uh, where are a bulk of your accounts? Southern or northern? or it's, it doesn't The Central matter. Coast. Central Coast. R- represents the bulk of our accounts. Okay. Which would range between Paso Robles mm-hmm. and 60 miles south down to, or I'm sorry, 90 miles south down to uh, Builton and Solvang. And who are the big accounts there? Are they universities? Are they restaurants? Are they school cafeterias or everyone in between? Well, the universities are very big accounts. Mm-hmm. And um, I would also have to say that some of the well-known established family restaurants that have been there for mm-hmm. 25, 30 years as well. And, and that area is really known for its Santa Maria style steakhouses. 
Mm. So there's a. What does you, that mean, Santa Maria style? It's Not just being it's, in it's just that infusion it's just, uh, marketing brand that they've used down there. It's Santa Maria is the town, uh-huh. thirty miles south of San Luis Obispo. And so, what do they do to the steak that makes it different from uh, say uh, New York steakhouse? More salt pepper than you would have on a normal one with some, <laughs> with some garlic and parsley. And are they are they? And uh, it's, I just wrote an article about cooking steaks. Outdoor, so, you know. Oh, they do it out. They grill them over mm-hmm. fire, over a wood fire. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sounds good. Too bad we can't do more of that here. And now, whereas you partner more with other people who do the shipping for you, like you might only have, what, three or four trucks or something? Yes. We, we use... Um, Cisco and... U.S. Food Service, um, smaller distributors, too, uh, independents, uh, to deliver direct to the consumer, or direct to the uh, restaurants. So how do you navigate it? I mean, is it diff- different politics to navigate your Cisco rep versus your, you know, Heritage Foods I guy? Am, I am still trying to figure that one out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I mean, it's a very diff- big thing because now you guys seem to be more A to Z independent. We bucked the system. We're going to process meats. We're going to take it. We're going to escape You're middlemen. talking Michael. Yes, yeah. Michael. Whereas Sam says, I'm going to produce an excellent quality product as an artisan does. And then he's going to rely on what we think these evil people are. But it proves that Surianos are being taken on the wheels of Cisco trucks. So, you know, um, it just shows that there's not. it's not black and white. Michael, do you make a point in the in Caney Foods? Do you make a point of of working with other outfits like the Hearst Ranch in terms of you know getting these sustainably raised animals and and uh, you know do you, is that part of your sort of marketing? It, it's push? one of our featured brands. Yeah, we we, we and you have other ones. You have other ones like that. Correct. I'm guessing. And so, is that a fairly new um, a fairly new development in your business? You guys just you know sort of like realized that there was more consumer demand for that, and so it would make sense for you to get more into that kind of of yeah. The, sort of the actual date, business. I'm not quite sure with when Brian uh, met my my cousin, but um, mm-hmm. I believe it was about three years ago that we started working uh, very closely with Hearst and started mm-hmm. working on their grass fed program with them. So. And you find it, you're finding a bigger and bigger audience for that, obviously. Constantly growing, that's especially fantastic. up in the Bay Area. Yeah, mm. yeah. The Bay Area, it's just it's, it's a it's a demand. It's a yeah. must have. Yeah. And both Sam and and, and, and the Canes have in common uh, a, a desire to kind of steer their ship towards sustainability a little bit. And you know, I wanted to ask uh, that question to both. Like, for instance, Sam, you're trying to get mostly Berkshire certified humane line. You know, even though you Obviously, because of how big your business is, is buying you know truckload after truckload after truckload of hams. What are the challenges of converting over your business towards sustainability? Like, what are your chief obstacles to accomplishing that? Besides having to work with me. Well, that was the big one. <laughs> um, that's the number one. I don't have any other problems. Other than that. I just supplies not a problem. <laughs> you know. Sam, when did you start, though? I mean, I mean, you and Patrick go back a ways, but was that sort of your introduction to using heritage breeds or better quality? You know, well, we had tried it once before materials. with materials. We we had tried it once before with another supplier of that type product, and mm-hmm. Bill Nyman. Sorry. Well, <laughs> well, no, but I mean, well, I mean, then. it was a supply issue. We had freshness issues. We never got what we wanted. Um, and Patrick came along and said, and it was more of a, it's not what I order; it's what he decides to send, and that seems to work. We can count on a certain amount of hands, a certain amount of belly, a certain amount of trim every week. So now, now once we start building demand for the finished product, then we get to count on the fact that Patrick is going to send us this. And as soon as we start counting on it, 
That's when. Patrick, <laughs> that's where the trouble begins. That's when Patrick starts to create a problem. No, well, we always get in the hams because let's face it, uh, chefs don't use that many hams. Not I unless mean, they're Latino, you know, where you yeah, know, fresh ham is the a big part of the world uh, we're in. Just doesn't yeah. move hams, like yeah. it or not. That's the yeah. truth. And um, well, it's a great way to you know make use. I mean, the whole animal has to be used, and you can't expect mm-hmm. one chef to right. you know use the whole pig. And, and one of the things that Patrick and I both are working now. on is trying to find more farmers willing to raise the animals the way we're looking for them, mm-hmm. pasture raised, certified, humane, antibiotic free, preferably closer to me, which mm-hmm. is versus Iowa and Missouri. But we've taken would, a few trips together yeah. to visit. And, I, and I, I expect in the next three to five years, Virginia is going to have more of that type. Yeah, I'm uh, sort of surprised that they don't. Do you know what you he have said, such a which is fascinating? Community. Along the Allegheny Trail, mm-hmm. that highway. You mean the Skyline Drive? 81. Right. That's yeah. where the movement exists already. Really? And it, now mm-hmm. it's a question of organizing it and harness it. But I love the way what he was able to place it. What about closer to D.C., though? To, oh, excuse me, Patrick. What about closer to uh, Well, that's D.C.? the market. But the yeah, but supply I would have thought, oh, of course, is on yeah, 81. I gotcha, yeah. Huh. That's where you have small farms, rare breeds, little slaughterhouses. I mean, finding that right one that's going to be the vehicle on which to... But uh, tell us about the West Coast. I mean, it gets so much freaking credit for being sustainable and organic, and it's where Alice mm-hmm. Waters is from. But when it comes to the meats... I mean, are there other places like you guys? I mean, I know it's not good to talk about the competition, but is there a growing movement towards beef processing and all that or is it more in the fruits and vegetable realm that northern california or central california i'm sure you i don't know if you see the ads out over here but they, they really push them over there that california really grows its happy cows and uh i mean yes but yes in, Nor- in northern california there's lots of you know small farms uh popping up everywhere right now mm-hmm. with their grass fed because it's the the demand is constantly growing but where are they processed i don't know I, you know, I, I honestly don't know the answer to that. So, well, there are some big. I mean, the Westlake Hallmark guys. processing facility. I mean, to you know, go down in infamy forever, and of course they're closed now. But I mean, there are a lot of big processing slaughter facilities. There's there's some big ones uh, in the valley in, in California. There's a brand called Valley Meats that's a, a big one over in Modesto. Mm-hmm. So. I think the trick is finding uh, the the how the slaughterhouses that you want to work with that kind of that want to work with that kind of breeds and the volume right because i mean if you're if you're a commodity slaughterhouse um then you're going to work with a commodity model where you're getting all of your meat from or all of your animals from a CAFO and whereas what you're doing with the Hearst Ranch is a much smaller you've got a lot smaller volume of animals coming through and so you have to have a processing facility that that can sort of be more nimble in the sense of working with smaller or larger quantities, right? Correct. Yeah. And that, I think, is the big challenge mm-hmm. for people like, well, even for you too, Sam, right? Sure. We have a uh, call-in, so uh, hold oh that God, thought. Caller, you're on the air. Hey, guys. How's it going? Brian Kenny <laughs> hey, from Brian. Hey, 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 Brian. Now you're going to recognize that baritone anywhere. <laughs> oh, how are you guys doing? <laughs> I knew it. The second he said a word, I knew Why it. Why didn't you come for the fancy food show just for fun? Oh, I'm trying to get myself grounded out here after working on a bunch of stuff that doesn't necessarily fall under my pay grade, but getting these real estate deals done and things like that. It's been a crazy year. Really? Yeah, my daughter had a birthday party yesterday. Congratulations. Okay, so they're... Eight years old. Eight years old. 
So, uh, Brian, we've been nice on age. quite the uh, trip uh, visiting various meat plant, uh, meat shops I, here and stuff. It's been a lot of fun. I'm sorry you couldn't be here. Yeah, well, um, I am too. I heard I've been enjoying the show, though, and I know that you guys had a, a couple questions that maybe you needed um, needed help with. In we terms certainly of the, needed your expert advice yeah. there, Brian. So maybe you can just repose the question and I can attack it that way. <laughs> about the size, about where the slaughterhouses are and how to find uh, facilities that can deal with guys like you? Well, it's, it's incredibly um, challenging. So in California, I just know in our, in our area right now, um, we go to Merced, California, which is about 179 miles away and that's where we do our our um, harvest and cut out mm-hmm. and then there is a local um, plant in Creston which is out in the um, uh, kind of near kind of near Paso Robles um, but you know getting getting to a place where you can get all your stuff done right and getting quality um, like cryovac is incredibly important. I, I, I enjoyed the Larry segment. People don't think about the fact that if there's something in your house, a truck brought it there. Yeah, and, name something that has right. not been on a truck. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's nothing. There's nothing that hasn't been on a truck. But and likewise, any kind of meat that you end up with um, has probably ended up in cryovac sealed at some juncture, and that's incredibly important to the livelihood of a meat company. And um, so our needs are pretty specific, and as a result of some opportunities and um, just a, in the collapse of one business, sometimes another one rises. There was a meat plant that was in bankruptcy in Paso Robles, and Hirsch Corporation bought it from the bankruptcy trustee. And I think that what we have in it, we have an opportunity to do if we can get everybody together on it is to partner with the co-op that has a mobile harvest unit and to provide that custom um, processing, custom harvest and processing or slaughter, whatever you want to call it, you know, taking them to meet Elvis or whatever. Um, I like to call it slaughter. I think calling it harvesting is like... meeting Elvis one. Yeah. (laughs) Or Judy Garland. It depends on what bus you ride. But but they had, um, you know, there's an opportunity there. Now, here's the deal, and um, the challenge is always in making the indicative mood should, could, would, or I'm sorry, the subjective mood of should, could, would, and the indicative mood of will, is, does, did. Making those two universes, which are separate universes, making them connect. That's the, that's the huge challenge. And so in, in our business, in the meat business, in the ranching business, you have a lot of people that are solitary um, it's the kind of work that breeds individualism and also paranoia and mistrust and things of that nature. So <laughs> we have universes to um, to transcend, you know, and it's a challenge. But the exciting thing is um, we got a partner and a tenant, really, in Caney Foods and um, Whitestone Meatpacking, and they're going to have, uh, you know, we have this ability to bring this capability. If we can get the human element to work together, then we can do something that's truly unique with that mobile harvest unit but there's a lot of there's you know eight or nine light years of space between would and could and should and and did so 
Well, it's, it, um, it is interesting. I mean, yeah, the, the, the amount of doers out there are definitely, you know, outnumbered by the, the number of talkers. Yeah. Um, oh, now, yeah. One of the things, talking about doing, that you guys are doing, Michael, and I wanted to ask your impressions on this. Uh, you visited a bunch of butcher shops and meat shops here in New York City, thinking about your retail outlet there on the West Coast. What uh, about some of these places you visited? We visited the Meat Hook. Marlowe and Daughters, we visited Prime Meats and Frankie's, they yeah. went on to Lobel's, they visited Zabar's, so they got a very cool, Ottomanelli's, oh. they got a very good uh, lens into the culture. So what were some of your impressions and inspirations for what you then might do uh, with the Hearst? I would say the, mainly the vintage antique feel that you get in a lot of those places is something we want to replicate for sure mm-hmm. when we get an opportunity to open a facility like that, because... That's really what people want to come and see. You know, they don't want to go to another box store to buy their meat. They want to have that whole, you know, old Well, I think also, I mean, I worked as a butcher for five years, and um, we had a very typical sort of French. It was run by a Frenchman and his wife, and um, we had all French personnel. and, And we, what people came in for was the custom quality. I mean, it wasn't that we were getting anything special in terms of product, because this was in the late 80s. Um, It was that we would cut it to order. And we would trim it to your specs. People saw it happening for them. And I think that that has a lot of the magic. I mean, that's the part of the marketing that is a lot of the magic when in, when you're dealing with the consumer specifically. Um, and I think that that's part of the, the sort of overwhelming desire that people have now to really be acquainted with where their food is coming from and who's who's growing it for them and by extension who is cutting it up for them in the end now what's your secret to success sam well you have two shops and no third shop uh, but you do have two (laughs) shops and now that ends up i mean the amount of skews skews sku's that sam has is beyond ridiculous and you mean by skews number of products yeah little mini pig keychains all the way to a ham sandwich bring me one sam to birds (laughs) but they're all virginia made peanuts and all that what have been your what have you learned about running a successful retail outlet because as the hearse grow their business um you know with the canies for retail like uh what's been successful for you by the way these shops are in colonial williamsburg so big tourist place you know, I wish I had spent more time learning about how to oh, hire, hire great us? people. Hey, oh. Brian. Hey. No, oh, no, he was saying that. Saying- <laughs> sorry. Uh, well, thought. I thought somebody was leaving. Sorry. <laughs> oh, sorry, guys. Uh, I thought I, I, I muted that. <laughs> so no, I, I, I just feel like uh, finding great people is, is to run the fo- store. Focus, uh, focus on that. Yeah. And but your stores is basically you are a made in Virginia museum in terms of products and if someone makes a new food product, hot sauce. Or yeah, something. Virginia or Southern. Virginia. We, or Southern. Yeah, we 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 uh, have, have ventured outside of the state of Virginia. Are you a considered a Yankee by other Southerners? Because you're certainly so far north. Uh, north Carolinians and Georgians. We are. Yeah. Really. Interesting. <laughs> Um, so, Brian, where are you now? Are you calling us from the ranch, from San Simeon? No, I'm in Alameda, California, in my <laughs> recently mopped kitchen. Oh, very <laughs> I've been nice. doing this morning, the modern American man listening to the show and mopping the floor. It's about oh time. God. A sensitive new age guy, I would call I was, that. <laughs> I was crying when the Yanni CD ended. I, <laughs> I put on the Heritage Radio Network. Brian, how's the weather over there? You know, it is beautiful today. And, uh, you know, and I just wanted to take a moment as an aside. I think that there's something happening, and 
I think when I first met you, Sam, it was probably two or three years ago. There's something happening where um, people in our business who have their ears turned on are realizing that what we need to do is embrace what we are rather than try to be something that we're not. And all that food that lost it lost its way because it wasn't, you know, easy to be mass produced or or whatnot has a place and people want it and it's coming back and luckily like butchers for example how many butchers are there left there aren't that many i mean and they're most supermarkets get boxes of meat and they cut steaks so they're steak cutters as opposed to real butchers so these are these are things that are coming back which is, which is exciting but i think it's progressive and regressive at the same time but for the listeners I think this is, uh, and the Heritage Radio Network has kind of fomented a lot of this, but these are these are many historic moments when you have um, people like Mike Caney, Sam, and Patrick on the radio. And, cool. and with Brian, and by the way, we have a great new show, which airs, premieres on Tuesday. Dave Arnold is doing it. He doesn't like to be called this, for lack of a better word. He's a professor at, at, at the Institute, French Culinary Institute, and a molecular biologist. Or Good le- gastronomist. Molecular gastronomist. He's, so yeah. he's going to be talking about the weirdest But he hates Hervé so it's okay. All he this hates stuff. what? <laughs> well, I will say one thing. I mean, uh, we are nothing without our sponsors. And right here, sitting in this room, uh, you know, uh, telephone-wise and, and in person, uh, you know, we have the people that make this voice possible. Um, and it's true. really one of the few places where these voices are preserved and celebrated, you know, without censorship. So um, thank you so much, because there is an entire network, a growing network of uh, things, including our turkey farmer, who is indirectly supported by this network. And we are going to, uh, in a second, cut to him to do a uh, Heritage Poultry. But what a show. Marion Nessel, Sam Edwards, Michael Caney, Brian Brian Kenny. Larry Bokel. I mean, the, we're the best food show on uh, Absolutely. on the waves. Yeah, hey, don't definitely the him. most real, you know. Well, we're the I think we're the only ones who actually talk to the people who are actually making food. I think you're right. I don't think anybody else. I mean, you know, lots of people have shows with chefs on them, and lots of people have cookbook authors, but we're the only people who actually have guys who well, are moving you've got, you've, people. You know, you've also got the draw of Roberta's. Yeah, yeah. Roberta's well, it's hard to resist. Yeah. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, Sam, you say that. I'm so envious. Uh, <laughs> you should be. I'm so envious. Thanks yeah. to my mom who bought 400 computers. We're also one of the most listened to networks. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, we are going to be, uh, we're best. taking the fourth off, but then we're coming back with Amanda Hesser. Incredible. Uh, yeah, which is a you know, very important journalist. And in the coming weeks, we're going to be talking with uh, the Catskill Mountain Foundation, uh, the Catskill Mountain Keeper, which is uh, one of the many organizations that is rallying support to um, limit or shut down the um, gas drilling in the Marcellus Shales mm-hmm. fields, which we t- touched on just briefly with Marion. But uh, the hydrofracking uh, is going to have a huge impact on agriculture in upstate New York, and that's something we want to want to follow that story over the coming weeks and months. So. Three farts to that subject. That Absolutely. is awesome. So, well, thank you for listening. And um, thank we will you, Michael be back. Caney. Thank you, Sam Edwards. Thank you, and Jack Insley. And guys, are the, uh, you're the only network with RecTech, also. Oh, That's yeah. right. And so thank you. Thanks, Rectech. The uh, only network that features truckers. 
Yeah. Yes. That's it. Tempor, right. good buddy. And right. uh, and thanks, by the way, Jack, for realizing that Italy was the other fourth World Cup team to win multiple cups. <laughs> Mary Nessel's going to walk out on the show if I didn't get that info. Into <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. She's like, punks. She's like, NYU grads, whatever. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, Steve, we throw it to you to take us uh, through the recipe of the week heritage poultry segment. Uh, very uh, 
important thing, and so they depended upon a good supply of, uh, of, of birds. And, of course, cooking cooking at that time, the cooler weather, they would have a wood stove or something of that nature, and the, the kitchen was kept warm when they were always cooking something, too. And, again, they would use things like uh, Jersey Giants specifically for baked chicken, and then there were different casserole recipes using barred rock or New Hampshire chicken and of course the most wonderful of that period of time too was good old chicken pot pies with a nice crust over them uh with that you would always have the canning of the season and all the canned vegetables would be in by that time and you would have a full complete meal one of the things that i'm getting ready to do is going to kansas city for the toyota farm to table event in kansas city there's about ten thousand people that can attend that and the Toyota Farm to Table event is all over the nation, and my good friend Chef Renee Kelly from Canaan Castle will be there, and she and I will be working with, with some uh, wonderful small taste recipes that they do because it's a large tasting event. So Again, it's summertime, and it's hot, so we'll be doing something very cool for those people that come in there. The people had it down. Historically, they knew when to use certain birds and what what chicken to use for what recipe, and it was a, in that sense, it was an expected normal life for that to happen. People would do this, and just it was a chain of how their life would exist, and each season produced the type of bird that they wanted. So, very interesting information. When I did some more of the research on that, and it, I've kind of enjoyed that. So, cooking with the seasons was something that was done at that time. I will let you go now, and I will talk to you next week, and hope your week is a good one. 